This is Audible. BBC Audio presents Doctor Who, The Eaters of Light by Rona Munro. Read by Rebecca Benson. It's all about the sun. Giver of light and life. Chariot of the gods. Fury of the firmament. Smiling face of the goddess. Static dance collar in a revolving reel of planets. A star. A certainty over billions of years of Earth's history. The light that touched it all. The one constant. Human creatures woke by its light, welcomed its warmth, sheltered from its glare, raised monoliths and temples to track its path and knew in every cell of their bodies how that light meant life for them, for all growing living things, for the whole world. And it would always be there, till the end of time. I mean, it's not like anything could eat it, is it? Anything can be eaten, one bite at a time, if there are enough hungry mouths. There was a girl. She had one job. She was standing on a hillside and she had one task. It was easy. There was a door behind her, an open passage into the low stone temple of heaped stones that seemed to grow out of the hill, a door into the earth. This was her job. If an ancient warrior crawled, dying out of that door, she had to blow a horn and blow it and blow it and blow it until another fighter came running up the hill to take their place, guarding the gate. If she didn't raise that alarm, then a monster would break out of the earth and eat the sun. The girl knew this only happened once in a generation. No one remembered the last time a warrior had crawled out to die in the sunlight gasping a terrified warning. The children guarded the gate, ready to raise the alarm, day and night. A warrior was always ready to run up the hill and vanish into the dark to fight the monster, but the alarm never came. The stones weathered, the grass grew, lichen covered the cairn, and the monster never came. Only this day, it did. This day, when Carr turned her head to see a shriveled, blackened husk of a man claw his way out of the darkness, her face was running with tears. She'd already seen such horror that this moving corpse was barely a distraction from howling grief. The dying warrior's eyes were wide in the sockets of their skull. Their voice was a desperate, ragged whisper, the last piece of life fighting through bared teeth. It's coming! 
and Carr watched the warrior die at her feet and bared her own teeth and whispered, Let it come. Book One Chapter One The TARDIS arrives at particular moments in space and time for many reasons, sometimes on purpose, sometimes as part of some unknowable cosmic destiny. This particular arrival did appear to be planned. The Doctor definitely intended to arrive 20 miles south of Aberdeen in the 2nd century AD. He had directed the TARDIS here because he wanted to win an argument with Bill. They had, it appeared, very strong and opposing views about the fate of the Ninth Legion of the Roman army, and they were still in the middle of that argument when the blue police box materialised on a bare hillside, and they spilled out its door into the pale winter sunlight. Bill was as relentless in her argument as a terrier chasing down a squeak. You don't always know. Are you actually saying you know the truth about every single event in human history? The doctor considered her question for a split second. Near enough. She was practically bouncing with frustration. You weren't there. You admitted that. You weren't there when the Ninth Legion disappeared. He shrugged. I can speculate. They'd barely progressed from the doorway of the TARDIS, intent on each other, the Doctor's tall frame bent towards Bill's angry face. Behind them, Nardal peered out dubiously at the towering grey sky. An icy wind gusted in his face, and he blinked rapidly in discomfort, drawing his dressing gown around him. He had clearly been settled somewhere, enjoying a pyjama day. His feet were wrapped in large, fluffy slippers, a half-filled mug of cocoa was clutched in one hand. His voice was plaintive as he tried to cut over the argument. I thought we were having a day off. The doctor and Bill didn't even hear him. Bill was vehemently holding her ground. Look, I do understand this story. The Eagle of the Ninth was my favourite book. You know that thing when there's one book you actually manage to read and you realise it's not that you can't read long books is that they keep giving you the wrong books. Of course they don't know that thing, the doctor had already cut over her, and that's fiction. Bill was still right in his sardonic face, raising her voice. But it made me think, it made me look at the history. The Ninth Legion weren't all killed in battle. It doesn't make sense. It was a battle. War never makes sense. Bill's chin was jutting in defiance. Her fists were clenched. So why do the stories say they vanished? Why don't they talk about the glorious dead lying on the battlefield? Where were all those bodies? The doctor pointed over the hill. About a mile over that way. Coming. Nardole winced. Oh no, really? Finally, they looked at him. He waved his now tepid cocoa in forlorn appeal. It's a day off. The day we don't go anywhere. A little oasis of calm and comfort. You promised. Bill hardly heard him. She had reached a moment. It was a moment of assertion. 
After weeks of wonder and months of mind-exploding discoveries about the nature of time, space, and time lords, she could be a dazed and awestruck human creature no longer. If she never knew anything better than the doctor did, she was going to shrivel into mere reactive gloop. She could feel it. Her brief adolescent obsession with the Ninth Legion of the Roman Army had been the thread that had tugged her towards a world of larger thoughts, had pulled her all the way into the teaching rooms of the doctor himself. He'd been masquerading as a tutor at the university where she dreamt of being a student instead of a dinner lady. The doctor had been the only one to see her true potential. But here he was, just like all the others who doubted her intelligence, suggesting she couldn't possibly know what she was talking about. She'd had enough. If they all died, who was left to tell the story? The doctor was already moving uphill. Just come and see. Bill stood her ground, shaking her head. If they were here, if there was a battle, and if they lost... The doctor interrupted again, his impatience rising. There was a battle here. They lost. He pointed again up the hill. They're over that rise, and then they would have retreated south, along the river. And there is no way, no way, a legion of elite Roman soldiers could all be wiped out. They retreated south, probably along the river there. Bill pointed at a narrow, wooded glen below them. And then... Something happened. She was already walking away, downhill towards the river. And I'm going to find out what, and then you can come and see. The doctor and Nardal watched her go. She didn't look back. Even her back was angry. The doctor sighed. Nardal glanced at him nervously. Is that safe? What? said the doctor. Well... If something disappeared, an elite legion of Roman soldiers, and she's walking off to find it. She won't find anything. She'll be back in ten minutes with wet feet and a worse mood. Come on. The doctor was striding uphill. Let's go and find the horrible truth. Nardal made one last appeal. I had a box set lined up. He took a paper packet out of his pocket and waved it in appeal. I was going to make popcorn. But the doctor didn't turn back either. Nardal hesitated for one moment. Bill was already out of sight, and the doctor was receding. He scurried after the doctor. They were skirting the edge of a hill. The doctor stopped, looking all around the slopes and glens on every side, searching. We must be close to the route the Romans took. Five thousand Roman soldiers ready for war. I think they'll have left a mark on the landscape. He strode on again, Nardal struggling to match his speed. Burning huts, slaughtered locals, abandoned bath towels. They crested the hill, and there were the stones. The sight of them didn't stop the doctor. He barely seemed to notice them striding through the commanding monoliths without checking his pace, but Nardal stopped dead, gazing in wonder. They were standing stones, about twice Nardal's height, seeming to grow out of the top of the hill. The stones blazed with colour. They'd been carved and painted in bold lines, 
Nardal blinked at the images. Many of them seemed abstract, circles and half-moons and shapes intersected with bold lines of contrasting colour, beautiful but unidentifiable. Other images represented lowering bulls and leaping salmon. But over and over, seeming to glare out at Nardal with one vivid green eye, was the image of a strange, sinuous beast, leaping legs, long spine, huge, heavy head bent down over a menacing, pointed snout, as if the creature was leaping forward to destroy. The menace of the creature, and the fear it inspired in the artists, was vivid in every line. Nardal didn't like the look of it at all. As he stared at it, a large crow flapped down to perch on top of the stone, watching Nardal sideways, like the strange carved beast from one glittering black eye. It was a look that seemed full of intelligence and warning. Then it spoke. It was a distinct caw, a crow voice, but the word was clear. Dark. Nardal stared. The crow cocked its head on one side. It said it again. Dark. Nardal called out, never taking his eyes off the bird. Doctor! Peering down the other side of the hill, the doctor had seen what he was looking for. He pointed triumphantly. Down there, see it? The crow flapped away over Nardal's head. The doctor was still intent on his discovery. The tracks of 5,000 tramping feet. Nardal hurried to his side. A gash of churned earth was a streak on the landscape far below them, vanishing into the glen beyond. The doctor was already bounding down the slope, Nardal running to catch him. Doctor, that bird, what about it? It said dark. That's why we're hurrying. Not much daylight this time of year. But it talked. The doctor huffed in impatience. Well, of course it did. It's a crow. All crows talk. This was news to Nardal. Do they? Well, they will until people stop having intelligent conversations with them. Keep up. Ahead of them, Nardal saw the sky was full of crows, circling in the evening sky. They found the battlefield. They stood on a slope of bleached winter grass and looked down into a glen filled with bodies. There were heaped piles of corpses filling the whole valley, as if a river in spate had rushed through and drowned them all in one moment, leaving the dead lying like a litter of fallen trees and mud and scattered boulders. Thousands of dead. For a moment, the doctor and Nardal didn't move, taking in the landscape of carnage. The doctor spoke first. Well, you're my witness. I do know what happened to the Ninth Legion of the Roman army, and they are definitely dead. For a moment, there was no sound but the wind and the harsh cause of the crows that circled the fallen. The doctor was looking at the sky. The crows... He was watching them, working it out. They're not landing. They're not starting to feed on the bodies. Nardal gave a sad little shrug. Maybe they're still nervous, working up to it. 
The doctor's expression was darkening with a worse apprehension. Maybe there's nothing left for them to eat. And the doctor was striding down the hill, right up to the edge of the sea of dead. He was examining two corpses of the thousands. An Iron Age warrior, leather armour, heavy sword still clutched in one hand was entwined with the body of a Roman legionary. Gleaming breastplate dulled and grimy, shining helmet tumbled beside his corpse. The bodies inside the armour were barely recognisable as human remains. They were shrunken and grey and already crumbling into soil. The doctor poked dubiously at the dusty remains. It's as if their bones have disintegrated while they were still alive. This made no sense to Nardal. What, what could do that? Crumble human bones? Darkness. A complete absence of sunlight. Nardal frowned. Well, maybe. But that would take ages, ages and ages. They all died at once. The doctor looked out over the sea of shrunken dead, the circling crows. A sudden urgency visibly flooded through him. I think we should go and find Bill. He turned into a forest of spears. A little cluster of small painted people were right behind them. Weapons pointed right in their faces. Chapter 2 Bill was slipping and scrambling through woodland, small scrub oaks and silver-barked birch. A few cheerful yellow leaves still clung like scraps of flags to the twisted branches. The ground beneath her feet was a slippery, rich mulch of decaying brown leaves, sliding treacherously as she hurried down the steep slope towards the roar of a river below. Her feet slipped out from under her, and she grabbed for a slender birch trunk. Panting, she clung to this precarious support. Bill felt it then. She was being watched. She peered down through the trees. Below her, visible through the crossing branches, was a stretch of flat green meadow by the river. Standing there, staring up at her, was a huge beast. It was vast. Thick, golden-brown fur covered its whole body. Two great horns curved out from its head. Their tips were metal. Someone had taken soft gold and shaped it to lethal sharp points. The great beast had only to toss its head and those horns would rip through any obstacle in its path. Its eyes were hidden somewhere in the thick fur of its face but Bill had no doubt from the tilt of its head that it was staring up at her. It snorted now and stamped its foot. She clung to the tree a moment longer. This creature was by the river. She wanted to reach the river. It seemed to block her path, but how dangerous could it be? It was just a very large cow, possibly a yak. Moving more cautiously, Bill continued her descent, trying to keep her eyes on the it couldn't be a bull, could it? 
Bill edged out of the trees onto the green meadow by the river. It was a bull. Behind the beast, a herd of shaggy cows were cropping the lush grass. They all raised their heads as Bill stepped out of the wood, munching jaws momentarily frozen. They all had huge, lethal horns. They all seemed to stare at Bill from eyes lost in their golden-brown fur. Bill began to edge slowly past the creatures, heading for the river's edge. Every shaggy head turned to follow her movement. The great bull took a step forward, snorting steamy breath. Bill froze. But the bull didn't move again, and she edged on, quickening her pace slightly. Then she saw the small figure standing amongst the giant cattle. It was a young woman, a little younger than Bill. She was dressed in colourful knitted wool, an over-tunic and leggings in intricate patterns of rusty brown and green. Her face and hands, the only skin visible, were tattooed in more swirling lines of pattern. She had a lethal-looking spear in one hand. For a moment, Bill and the young woman just stared at each other. Then the girl bared her teeth. The canines had been filed to sharp points and tipped with gold. She moved with lithe, lightning speed. She leapt forward, grabbed the hairy flank of the snorting bull, and shot up onto its back. Before Bill had fully understood what was happening, bull and rider were charging straight at her. The young woman shrieked an ear-splitting war cry. Her arm flexed as she raised the murderous spear. Bill ran. Her breath rasped loud and panicky in her head. Her feet slipped on the muddy grass beneath her feet. Hoofs were close behind her. She could hear the girl urging the bull on with guttural cries. She weaved and dodged, but there was nowhere to run to. The river was a dark, raging torrent to one side, the steep slope of forest on the other. She dodged again, aiming for the cover of those trees. She nearly reached them, but the huge beast was suddenly between her and that escape. She wheeled back, tiring now. Something hit her like a moving wall, the bull's hairy side slamming into her. Bill was knocked down onto the wet grass, the breath woofing out of her. The sun had come out of the clouds, its light was blinding in her face as she stared up in terror at the bared, shining teeth of the young warrior. The other woman raised her arm. Sunlight glinted, dazzling off the bull's gold-tipped horns as it lowered its head to toss and gore. Then, out of the shadows of the wood, a tentacle of darkness shot out and coiled round those sunlit horns. The bull bellowed in shock, as it was dragged backwards. Its rider screamed as she tumbled from its back. Bill gaped as she watched more and more sinuous tentacles shoot out of the darkness of the wood, slapping against the howling bull, dragging it back towards the darkness. Then those dark tendrils were creeping over the sunlit grass, creeping towards Bill and the bull's rider. The girl yelled grief and defiance as the darkness snaked towards her, watching in agony as her beloved bull was pulled to the ground, shrinking, dying. Then the darkness lashed at her and she ran. As the other women fled out of their grasp, every tentacle seemed to turn and writhe and shoot out towards Bill. 
Bill had a split second to react as she saw them reaching for her. A tentacle slapped the ground right beside her. It caught the edge of her foot and seemed to spread instantly, dark slime sliding up over the bare skin of her ankle. Bill screamed and wrenched herself free, but the flailing ropes of darkness thrashed after her. Bill scrambled up and leapt into the river. At once, she was inside boiling darkness. It surged around her, carried her away with shocking speed. Her arms and legs flailed, buffeted and tossed by the surging water. She could see nothing but showers of shining silver bubbles. Then the current hurled her upwards and her head broke the surface. She grabbed one great sucking lungful of air and then she was tumbled downwards again. For a moment, the current held her pinned, choking and struggling against a rock as it swirled her in a powerful eddy. A great silver face was suddenly in hers. A huge salmon seemed to gaze at her out of great shining eyes. A tentacle of dark lashed down through the water, slapping for the salmon's gleaming skin. The giant fish shot off, speeding on the current, and Bill was plucked and buffeted in its wake. Her throat was convulsing now, her body screaming for oxygen. Her head swam. In a second, she knew her mouth would fall open and dark water would fill her lungs. The river threw her against another obstacle, a slab of rocky bank. There, just visible in the murky water, was a shape carved into the underwater stone. It was the shape of a leaping fish, an image of the real salmon that had just swept past her. Its carved head seemed to point to a dark hole in the bank, the entrance to an underwater cave. Bill grabbed for the lip of the entrance and, with her last atoms of oxygen, willed her body to pull her into that cave. She was literally on her last breath. But above her, she could see light, a dim glow, an opening out of the dark, choking water. She had no strength left, so let go and feebly kicked her failing body up towards the light. Her head broke the surface. She took a great screaming intake of air into flattened lungs. She clung to the edge of the rock opening into the cave above her, panting, her vision swimming and then focusing. A sword was pointing right in her face. Chapter 3 The sun was sinking towards the dark shapes of the hills as the Doctor and Nardal were herded towards a small settlement. Low, round huts built of stone and wood were surrounded by a green earth rampart. Smoke spiralled up into the growing dusk from the centre of the largest building, the hall. Jabbing spears chivied them to duck into its low entrance. Inside, Nardal looked around in appreciation. Every surface was painted and decorated, every bowl, every bit of wall, every stool, every piece of cloth. Everything carried geometric patterns in red and blue, green and brown, yellow and purple, the designs echoing the tattoos and the knitted clothes the fierce little people around them were wearing. I like what you've done with the place, said Nardal. Bright! Everything painted, 
the doctor agreed, looking at the decorated faces glowering all around him. Their faces were decorated in the same swirling patterns. Painted people! A spear jabbed right in his face. The boy holding it scowled ferociously. That's a Roman name. The doctor nodded impatiently. They call you painted people, Picts. Yes, but we're not Roman. We're here. We let you herd us home. Now, where are the grown-ups? Nardal focused again on the hostile faces around them. Now he saw it. They were children. The boy threatening the doctor was the eldest of them, and he seemed no older than thirteen. The boy moved his spear closer to the doctor. Don't move. Don't speak. Car will be here soon. Whose car? asked the doctor. The watcher at the gate. My sister. The doctor snorted. Well, let's hope she's the brains of the family. Nardal felt that something was needed to lighten the atmosphere. I'm Nardal, he said to the angry boy. What's your name? I'm Ban of the gatekeepers, and you'll stay quiet when I tell you to. Nardal ignored that threat. Smiling cheerily, he offered the crumpled bag from his pocket. Popcorn, won't take a jiffy to make. The doctor gave him a cold look. What are you doing? Nardal blinked. Ingratiating myself? Stop it! It's nauseating! The doctor snatched the bag of popcorn kernels out of Nardal's hand. Ban's voice rose, shrill and frightened. Don't move! The doctor had frozen, apparently startled, looking around the hall. Shh! Do you hear that? Do you know what it is? Ban took a nervous step back as the doctor loomed over him. That's the sound of my patience shattering into a billion little pieces. The doctor knocked the boy's spear aside, right in his face now, horribly gentle. Now, there are only two things I need to know. Where's my friend? And what destroyed the Roman army? The voice came from the doorway. I destroyed the Roman army. They all turned. A girl stood in the entrance. She was pale, exhausted. Her face was drawn with suffering, but her expression was hard and fierce. The doctor considered her. You destroyed the whole Roman army, all on your own. That's a good trick. And you are? Car. I'm the warrior who keeps the gate. The doctor nodded at this first shred of useful information. All right, there's a gate. Where is it? What does it lead to? But Carr was ignoring him now, moving quickly to Ban. For a moment, she talked just to him, quiet, her voice cracking with grief. Ban, it took the great fool. Ban's eyes widened in horror, and then, like hers, flooded with tears. But Carr instantly pushed the grief down again. Still ignoring the doctor, she showed the watching children the strange implements in her hands. She held up a spear-like shaft, studded with horizontal spikes like a huge comb, 
then brandished another shaft with a round slice of thin crystal set into the top of it like a huge hand mirror. Kara addressed all the painted children gathered around her. The first battle is over, but now we have to fight again. We have to drive the beast back. Ban visibly swallowed in fear. He understood what that meant. The doctor snatched up this new scrap of information. And there's a beast. Of course there is. Which side of the gate is it now? He indicated the children crowded round them. And where are your parents? Where are the other fighting women and men? Carr glanced at him from dead, empty eyes. It was a great battle. A great battle, and we beat you, Roman. Ban was beside her, echoing her defiance. Carr beat you. She did what even our parents couldn't. The doctor looked her up and down. She's not a warrior. She's an embryo. What did she do? Throw her cuddly toys at them? Carr raised the heavy spiked weapon in her right hand, suddenly flooded with rage. Listen, Roman. We're not Roman, the doctor cut over her. We're not part of the Roman army. Nardal nodded agreement, not even a little bit Italian. Carr shook her head scornfully. You think I can't see it in you? All that power, all that certainty. Nardal could see that the patterns on her face and arms were tattoos, not just painted on. It made her look older than the other children. He realised she was probably the oldest of them. Now she advanced on the doctor, her voice full of quiet rage. Let me tell you about the Romans. They are robbers of the world. When they've thieved everything on land, they'll rob the sea. If their enemies are rich, they'll take all they have. If their enemies are poor, they'll make slaves of them. She was right on him now, glaring challenge in his face. Their work is robbery, slaughter and plunder. They do that work and call it empire. They make a desert and call it peace. All right, said the doctor, but the indoor plumbing's quite useful, eh? Carr was suddenly shouting at him. They're not conquerors, they're all cowards. And they're all dead, the doctor shouted back, silencing her. And I don't believe you killed them. He took a deep breath, calming himself. So, what's the secret? You've got a very large attack dog hidden in your attic. Carr's face closed down. She turned away from him. I'm not answering your questions. The doctor pretended to look round the room. No sign of a beast? That's a shame. A pet's a great thing to have, supposed to mellow the darkest disposition. Outside it was growing darker. The light from the fire in the centre of the room flickered over the doctor's face as he stepped closer to Carr, his tone warmer gentler. I can help you, you know, but I think we're probably very short of time. She stared up at him, her weariness and fear suddenly clear on her face. But then her expression hardened again. You've no time left at all, Roman. I think we'll kill you and keep your pet. Nardal was startled. Is she talking about me? The doctor glanced at Nardal and threw away the crumpled bag of popcorn kernels. You wouldn't like him, 
He's barely house-trained. Can't even cook. Nardol couldn't believe it. I'm standing right here. And he's very slow, quite sluggish. Nardol's offence deepened. Still right here. There was a sharp crack from the fire as he spoke. Instinctively, Carr looked at the flames, puzzled. The doctor turned to Nardol. I mean, can you even run in those shoes? Nardol looked down at the large, fluffy, and now very muddy slippers on his feet. He was dubious. I think so. Good. Run. As the doctor said this, the fire erupted in an explosion of bursting popcorn kernels. All the painted children jumped back in fright. The doctor grabbed Nardol. They leapt over the erupting flames and out into the dusk. They were running uphill again, Nardol struggling to keep up with the doctor's long strides. He could barely see the thin, loping figure ahead of him in the gathering dark. He called after it, plaintive. Where are we going? The doctor barely checked his pace, throwing the words over his shoulder. The gateway. The hall of the painted people was built just below the ridge of the hill on one side of a narrow valley. Inevitably, Nardal reflected, this gateway could only be reached by running downhill to the valley floor and then, every muscle screaming, scrambling up the steep slope of the hill on the other side. Nardal slipped and fell forward on the damp ground. One soggy slipper was wrenched off his foot by sucking bog, and sharp heather stems scratched his hands as he threw them forward to break his fall. His knees were sodden with damp peat as he pulled himself up again. The sun had nearly set behind a bank of ominous dark rain clouds against the horizon. He paused, lungs pulsing with pain to look back. No one seemed to be following them. He realized he didn't find this reassuring. Those fierce children seemed so ready to hunt them down. He couldn't believe they weren't out there, somewhere, in the growing dark. Nardal struggled on. The doctor had nearly reached the ridge on the other side of the glen. Now Nardal could see a looming shape ahead a low stone building built of flawlessly stacked stones. Its door was a gaping mouth of darkness, and against the evening sky, it seemed somehow to pulse with menace and danger. Nardal halted, every instinct warning him to stop. He called up the slope. Doctor, I don't think we should... Even as he uttered the words, he saw the doctor duck his head and vanish through the stone door into darkness. Nardal sighed in resignation. He hesitated a second, then braced himself to follow. There was a rustling sound as all the Pictish child warriors rose up out of the long grass around him and menaced him with their spears again. Nardal looked at all those fierce little faces, and he'd suddenly had enough. He sat down heavily with a squelch on a pillow of bright green bog moss. Fine, that's it. I'd rather be a pet by your fire than follow him into that place. A crow flew over, cawing loudly. Again, Nardal was astonished to hear it calling out words. Gate! Gate! A last shaft of dying sunlight shone out briefly from the clouds on the horizon. 
the whole hillside shook. Carr wheeled to look up at the strange menacing building into which the doctor had vanished. Her voice was full of raw fear. The gate's opening again. Chapter 4 The doctor was making his way along a narrow passage, roofed and walled with great slabs of stone. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was walking into a chambered cairn, a low stone temple expertly built from rock. The Iron Age people of what would be Scotland built them at the crests of hills, sinking the chambers within into the ground, but placing them close to the sky. Later academics would debate their function, but the doctor knew what they were for. They were gateways between worlds. In most of them, that gateway was metaphorical. They stood, symbolically, between earth and heaven. In this one, he strongly suspected the gateway was something very real and very dangerous, an opening out of this universe. To either side of him, passages led off to other chambers and hidden rooms, but he ignored these, walking slowly down the main passage. Ahead of him was a flat wall of rock, an apparent dead end. As he reached out to touch it, the last shaft of sunlight reached down the stone corridor behind him and briefly lit up the rock under his hand with a wash of warm light. The rock shuddered and dissolved. The doctor stepped through the space where it had been and found himself on a plateau of bare rock above a great gulf of darkness. He strongly suspected this was another dimension, one of those chaotic, half-formed, in-between places that bulged destructively through the fabric of the universe. He was staring into infinite blackness, but as he focused, he could just make out faint movement. Somewhere out there, great sinuous shapes were coiling and roiling like monstrous eels. The doctor took an instinctive half-step backwards. Something crunched under his feet, Looking down, he could see he was standing on a litter of human bones and weapons. Generations of fighters had made a stand here and died and turned to crumbling dust. And something else was flowing over these ancient bones. Light was running like water through the open gate. The doctor looked back. Behind him, he could still see back through the portal that had opened to allow him to step into this other universe. He could still see the passageway that had led him into the cairn and through this impermanent doorway. Far away, back in that other reality, he could still see the flash of bright sunlight and green grass framed by the great stones back at the entrance to the cairn. That light was flowing along the corridor as if it was a solid element, forming into wisps and tendrils, like ink swirls in water. The light seemed to be sucked over the skeletons and crumbling rocks at the doctor's feet and out into the abyss on the other side of the open gate. And out there, in the darkness, thin tentacles came reaching out to catch that solid light, to suck it in, to feed off it. A great hissing, buzzing noise grew, and those tentacles reached closer 
reaching for the tiny figure of the doctor, standing alone, facing the dark. There were six Roman soldiers in the little cave with Bill, just visible in the light of the small fire they'd lit. She had been pulled from the water and dropped on the rocky floor of the cave. Barely conscious, she blinked up at a sword, still threatening her where she lay. She tried to move her sodden limbs, but they wouldn't obey her. Cheek to the rough stone, she just tried to keep breathing. She could hear the Roman soldiers debating. Kill it! Kill it now, it's one of them! They've found us! A calmer voice, the legionary who still held a sword to her face. She's not one of them. Look at her. No tattoos. No decoration. She's from the Empire, has to be. As he spoke, this legionary pulled his sword back and sheathed it at his side. Bill found the strength to roll over and struggle up onto one elbow. Through the smoky, shadowy air, she could see them all huddled a little distance away, staring at her as if she was an unexploded bomb they might have to defuse. She had a lucid moment, peering at their drawn, grubby faces to think they all seemed very, very young. Boy soldiers. Then one of them was pointing at her leg, his voice high with terror. It's touched her, look! Bill looked down. She was aware of an icy throb on her bare ankle, the place where the tentacle of darkness had snaked out to strike her. Now she saw there was a mark, a shining mark of darkness, like black slime on her skin. It was growing as she watched, creeping up her leg. She heard the soldiers crying out in alarm, but the cold dizziness was spreading through her. The light seemed to be darkening. Bill's vision blurred, and then there was nothing but dark. The doctor stepped back in alarm as the darkness shot towards him. There was a shudder in the stones around him, and the gate closed. In one flickering instant, the wall of impenetrable rock reformed in front of the doctor's face. He was already turning, running as fast as he could towards the exit from the chambered cairn. He was already shouting as loud as he could as he ran. Nardal! Nardal! We have to close this entrance! He burst out into the bright sunlight. He stopped dead, blinking against the glare. Nardal was sitting below him on the hillside, covered in paint and tattoos. He was wearing the knitted, decorated leggings and tunic of the Picts as he sat with a group of children, telling them a story. So, obviously, no one on the Marie Celeste realised they were meeting diplomatic envoys from Enzamoda. Nardal glanced round at the doctor, pleased but not startled. Oh, you're back! They said you were gone forever. He turned back to his audience, continuing the story. And of course, the Enzamoadins communicated by digesting each other, and had no idea there was any other way to have a chat. The doctor was absorbing all the startling information he needed in one brief, disorientated moment. It was no longer sunset. It was the middle of another day. Nardal had clearly been living amongst the Picts for some time. So basically, the ambassador got through the whole human crew before he choked on a lifeboat. The doctor cut over this, working it out. 
The gateway is an interdimensional temporal rift, he said. A second in there equates to days of time on this side. Nardal nodded in cheery agreement. You've been gone two days, eight hours, five minutes. Still, you made it back. I thought I might be waiting years. And the next thought crashed through the doctor like a tsunami of dread and burst out his mouth. So where's Bill? Bill was aware of light on her face, a red glow through her closed eyelids. She opened her eyes, blinking up into a sliver of sunlight. She was lying on the ground. Above her, in the stone roof of the cave, a fissure in the rock let in a little dazzle of sun. As Bill blinked, it was already drifting away as the sun moved, a shadow sliding over her face. The voice came from right beside her. Right, we need to move her again. Hands gripped Bill, gently lifting her and moving her back into the sunlight. Another voice. She's awake, Lucius. Is she? Someone leaned over Bill, and she was looking up into the weary face of a very young legionary. He attempted to smile at her. All right, can you sit up? Bill tried. She struggled for a moment. Then Lucius slid an arm round her to help her up. He rested her against the wall of the cave. Bill croaked thanks from a bone-dry throat. He passed her a leather water bottle, and she drank gratefully. Keep your leg in the sunlight. It's nearly healed, but you still need all the rays you can get. Bill looked down at her leg, stretched into the small slice of sunlight. She could still see a faint grey mark, like a bruise on her ankle. She moved her foot tentatively. The whole bottom half of her leg felt numb and wooden, but her toes still flexed. What happened to me? Another voice answered her. The beast started to eat you. Bill looked towards the legionary who'd spoken. He was part of the huddle of soldiers in one corner of the cave. They were all slumped together in a way that suggested they were too exhausted to move, too cold to straighten out their limbs, collapsed against each other in a defeated huddle. They clearly came from every corner of the huge Roman Empire, but they all wore the leather and iron armour of Roman foot soldiers. Their helmets were abandoned beside them in a heap of their own. They were all watching her. The legionary spoke again. We can't feed her, Lucius. There isn't enough. Lucius still crouched protectively next to Bill. We can, Cornelius. Shut up. Cornelius couldn't believe it. He straightened up to confront Lucius. There's nothing left, just crumbs. Well, she can have my crumbs. I said shut up. I'm not hungry, Bill interjected. Cornelius stretched his mouth in a humorless grin. Lucky you. Bill was working it out. The armor, the battered helmets. Are you? She hesitated. It seemed so unlikely. You're the Ninth Legion. Another soldier spoke then, his eyes fixed on the ground as if he was ashamed to raise his head. What's left of it? Bill absorbed that, trying to understand. 
Her voice was quiet and shaky, already dreading the answer. So, what happened? You were defeated? The boy looked up at her then, his face full of bleak despair. The beast ate everyone. Lucius pointed at her injured leg. You saw it. You saw what it can do. A fourth legionary spoke, voicing their fear. And now we know it's still out there. We already knew that. The young man shook his head, his voice a frightened whisper. It was injured. I thought it might die. Cornelius gave another bitter smile. If two armies couldn't kill it, what could? Bill looked at them all in disbelief. I was looking for you, she whispered. There was a flare of hope on the young soldier's face. You're from south of the wall. Are they looking for us? No, she swallowed. I don't know. No one knew what happened to you. You just vanished. The doctor's barely controlled rage was blasting from his eyes. You didn't look for Bill. Nardal wriggled where he sat, shrinking almost visibly under the doctor's fierce gaze. I did, he squeaked in protest. For ages. And you stopped because? Because I couldn't find her. The doctor's face was now centimeters from Nardal's. His voice was quietly dangerous. How hard did you look? Unnoticed, Carr had joined them. She cut in on the standoff. She's gone. The doctor wheeled on her. I saw her by the river. The beast took the great bull. Then it took her. For a moment, he didn't answer. Then he straightened to his full height, radiating certainty. No, it didn't. I saw it. I don't care what you saw, but we'll circle back to that in a minute. Something else we need to have a chat about first. He was advancing on her now. Despite herself, she took a half step back. Again, he lowered his voice to whisper five words that seemed to cut right through Carr as she glared up at him. I know what you did. Carr didn't answer, but whatever she read on his face killed any denial as it formed in her mouth. For a moment, no one spoke. The only sound was the winter wind blowing through the faded grass. Then the doctor sighed, a breath of infinite weariness at the inevitability of disaster. I've looked through the gate. I know what's there. I stood on the bones of the warriors who stopped those beasts breaking into this world. Carr was crying now, her head bowed, silent tears running down her cheeks. Why didn't you guard the gate, Carr? She looked up at him, loss and grief naked on her young face, and she remembered. Book Two Chapter One Carr was nearly grown, fierce, strong, full of life. She flew through the tangled woods of oak and rowan, 
her weight always on the front of her running feet, so she was as swift as she was silent. She matched the pace of the great herd of shaggy cattle, running fearlessly among their thundering hooves, grabbing the flank of the great bull and pulling herself onto his moving back to gallop, whooping, through the wild flower meadows by the river. She was thirteen, nearly fourteen, ready for the rest of her life. She was invincible, a sapling stretching for the sky, a field of grass pulsing with green life, a river of muscular brown water powering its way towards the distant sea, or anywhere else it wanted to go. It's possible she was a little spoiled. Well, not spoiled exactly, just very certain of her worth in a way that had never been shaken by any serious threat. Because she lived in paradise. The only enemy she knew was the weather. But cruel, cold and soaking rain were no real threat as long as you had a fire to return to and cured leather and lanolin-rich wool on your back, armour against the coldest, wettest blast. She ate fish and green herbs and rich venison and drank cream-thick milk and nibbled the best crumbled white cheese. Her life circled with the sun, rising earlier and earlier each spring morning as the dawn crept over the edge of the hill and through the door of the hut where she lay in a warm heap, safe amongst the breathing bodies of everyone she knew and loved. She was rarely alone, even running through the forest shadows. Her brother Ban ran beside her, his younger, shorter legs already straining to match hers. Her older brothers and sisters ran ahead of her, full of the power and strong life she knew she was growing to claim. Her mother stroked her hair every night as she drifted to sleep. Her father hugged her into light every time she showed him how amazing she'd become, bringing down a plump bird with one swift arrow, leaping to swing from a tree branch, tumbling and cartwheeling down a steep hillside, and landing, shouting, on her feet. And no one could talk to the crows like Carr. It was almost the only time she sat still. Most evenings, if it was dry or dry enough, she'd sit on the slope of the hill above the tree line, above their settlement, watching the crows and jackdaws drifting home to roost. And she'd listen to the news as they called to each other as they flew. The city of crows was huge greater than any gathering car had ever seen or ever would. For hundreds, maybe thousands of years, they'd drifted and scavenged over the woods and glens, far longer than the human creatures who now lived below them. Their city was a dense mass of dark, bushy nests, a thousand clumps of twigs, shedding scraps and renewed over and over again, as generations of corvids roosted and squabbled and gossiped in their treetop homes. Carr knew the movements of their days, sometimes running below them to follow their swift flight that stretched right to the edge of the world, of her world. She never travelled further than the crows. Why would she? Why would she step beyond the edge of paradise? The crows flowed out from their roost each morning, just before the sun rose, just before every fierce, glowing summer dawn, before every pale, ghostly winter sunrise, they flew out in the growing light, filtered through low grey cloud, or mist, or drumming, soaking heavy rain, over a landscape frosted with ice or buried in snow, 
When the light grew, the crows flew. They'd range out for food, descending as a dark army to pick over the spring meadow for juicy grubs, flocking and squabbling round dead, dying beasts, a relentless band of assassins armed with stabbing beaks, hastening the weak and ageing into death. They were death's servants, tidying the mess and rot of life into tidy shreds and bleached bones, ready to return to earth. Carr watched that and understood its inevitability, another part of her life under the sky. The crows knew this truth too, and discussed it in harsh voices, rough and robust jokes about their lives as death's rubbish collectors. Carr smiled to hear them. She didn't fear death. Not then. As the earth turned away from the sun again, and the horizon rose to block its light, the crows began to fly back to their roost. From all the corners of the sky, they flapped their way home to bed, a trailing ribbon of jagged wings. And for that first hour of dusk, as bird after bird landed back on their swaying perches in the forest's highest branches, the roar of their harsh voices calling together was the loudest sound Carr ever heard. They were all talking at once, shouting of everything they'd done, everything they'd seen, each buried bush, each juicy eyeball, each soaring, threatening eagle harried away from its kill, each hare running for cover in the heather. There was every kind of corvid in that city. Carrion crows, all in black, from shining, inky wingtip to the sharp ends of their beaks. Hooded crows in grey armour of paler feathers with the same dark, sharp heads. Rooks, big, shaggy, swaggering clumps of roaring rooks, shouldering in amongst the smaller birds with belligerent confidence. Clinging round the edge of the huge crow city was a sprawling suburb of jackdaws, watching everything sideways with their eerie, pale eyes, calling their own name over and over in applause and agreement to everything that was said. And occasionally, beyond that, in a solitary towering tree just for them, a pair of solemn, stately ravens might roost for a season, watching and listening to the fevered clamour of the others with silent dignity, before flapping back to rocky crags higher up. On every evening she could, cold or warm, in buffeting wind and in slow, cooling sunset, Carr came to listen to this shouted exchange of every piece of news. The crows knew everything. They knew she would be the gatekeeper before she did. Having heard the discussion between her parents and the other adults in her settlement when Carr was out with her brothers and sisters, tickling trout from the river, they knew enough human speech to tell her too, circling her, swooping close enough to brush her face with teasing wingtips as she gazed up at the evening roost. Gate! Gate! Ka! Gate! She couldn't believe it. And then she knew it was the most natural thing in the world, the highest honour any child could receive. Of course it was going to come to her. She ran home, already beaming in delight, she burst into the decorated main hall where half the people in her whole tiny world were already gathering round the evening fire. She shouted her joy. I'm the watcher at the gate. It's me. It's me. It's me. Her mother looked at her in love and exasperation, even as most of the other adults were starting to laugh indulgently, 
saluting Carr, applauding her delight. Carr, you're supposed to wait to be asked. And then the music began, and they danced. They really danced. That was how happy they were before the world ended. Chapter 2 This is the furthest edge of the world, and we come from the centre of everything. Lucius's voice was low, his gaze distant. He seemed to be almost talking to himself as he began his explanation. Bill listened, and all the other legionaries listened too, as he began the story of what had brought them to this dark prison. We all met in Rome... Lucius was a middle child, too young to have his own life, too old to be indulged, from dawn to dusk he worked. The family were holiers. They had a cart and oxen, their whole wealth and livelihood. They lived with the oxen, one wooden stable contained the animals and the whole family. Every few days Lucius and his father harnessed the huge slow beasts to their wagon and bumped their way round all the small farms that surrounded their tiny home, gathering up the farmer's produce for market. Then they turned the oxen's heads towards the distant city sprawled by the river Tiber. They bumped over dusty roads until they were right under the high walls of the largest, greatest city in the world, at least Lucius believed it was, Rome. The gates would be closed for the night by the time they arrived. All through the evening and into the hours of darkness, cart after cart would roll up and beasts would be tethered around them, a great army of farmers and wine sellers and egg collectors and cheese merchants, all the mountains of produce needed to feed this vast city for just one day. Lucius and his father would sleep in the cart, taking turns to guard it and their oxen from the robbers that sometimes ran out of the shadows to stab and steal. Then, in the dark before dawn, the great gates in the city walls would swing open. The soldiers guarding them would shout and chivy the carters through. Lucius would just hope they had reached the city early and were close to the front of the queue of wagons because the journey into the market square through narrow streets was hours long. Restless, lowing oxen tramped nose to tail sometimes stopping altogether for long ages as some obstruction in the street ahead halted the whole procession. If you were near the back, the sun would be high before you even got close to the centre of the city and your oxen would be bellowing and stamping with discomfort. They'd be desperate for water and you would feel your own throat convulsing with thirst. You breathed nothing but road dust for all those long hours. By the time Lucius reached the market, he would already be bone-weary and coated with dirt. Then there were long hours of haggling with unhappy cooks and house slaves and other merchants, never able to let your concentration slip because every Roman citizen or slave felt certain of their right to get a bargain and they'd rob you of any scrap of profit if you didn't stand your ground. By the time evening came, and Lucius and his father turned their cart back towards the road home, he would barely have slept for two days and would be nodding into unconsciousness where he sat on the swaying cart. 
but he had to stay awake and drive the oxen. His father slept like a corpse in the empty cart, but Lucius had to remain alert and guard their wealth on the dangerous road home. He was young. He had the strength for it, his father said. Lucius's father was 31 years old and looked 60, broken by all the sleepless nights and dusty roads. That was Lucius's future. A share of this punishing life that left you no leisure to spend the few coins you made on anything but survival. He didn't know he had another choice. Until he saw the legionaries. Lucius was driving the empty cart and his sleeping, snoring father back through the dusk towards home when he saw a great column of dust on the road ahead. It was the dirt raised into the air by 5,000 stamping feet. A Roman legion was marching back towards the centre of the empire. Rome. The outriders reached him first, mounted officers in gleaming armour, their jaws set under their shining helmets. They gestured angrily at him to clear the road. Lucius tried to turn the oxen towards the side of the track, but as the beasts balked and jittered, one of the officers lost patience, riding at the oxen, hitting at their big soft snouts till they jerked away in alarm and stumbled into the ditch. Lucius fought to hold the reins and keep them upright, but it was too late. The cart's near side wheels slipped into the ditch, and they were stuck, trapped there, tilted sideways as the Roman legionaries started to march past. Lucius's father didn't even wake, rolling along the bed of the cart to lodge, still snoring against its lower edge. Lucius climbed down and hurried to soothe the distressed oxen holding their heads. He could do nothing but watch as the legion flowed past him. Angry and resentful as he was, he still couldn't help feeling awe and admiration at the sheer military power he saw. Every legionary was in step, arms and legs powerfully muscled and moving in perfect unison. Every helmeted head pointed front, all eyes fixed with apparent determination on the road ahead, until the last soldiers came in sight. The tail end of the column was made up of all the legion's support, carts of oxen with their loads of supplies, the rolled bundles of tents and kindling, and great sacks of dry and preserved food. Guarding these supplies and servants and marching among them were a group of very young legionaries, they marched in step for a few paces, then they'd break that and skip or half-dance to the tune one of them was noodling out on a little bone pipe. They were talking and laughing, shouting to each other over the backs of the oxen, calling out all the boldness and badness they were planning once they were off duty inside the great city of Rome. Then one of them, a tall young man, saw Lucius. He stopped dead for a second taking in Lucius's miserable plight. Then he shouted, Legionaries, to the rescue! In seconds, they were swarming round him, shouting and calling encouragement to each other. They scrambled into the ditch, four of them on each wheel of the cart as their leader barked instructions. They bent their legs and straightened their backs, faces flushing with effort, cheeks puffing with breath. They physically lifted the cart out of the ditch and safely back onto the road. Lucius's father woke at last, sitting upright and blinking in confusion at the grinning soldiers all round him. Lucius stammered his thanks. The tall young man waved Lucius's words away. The life's hard enough, believe me, we know. 
The others were laughing in agreement. Every one of us were carters once. That's why they put us on the baggage train. The other legionaries were already hurrying to join the tail end of the marching procession, but the tall boy threw a last thought back to Lucius. You should join up, get a wage, see the world. And that was how Lucius met Sextus and all the rest of the baggage boys. Joining up was easy. The recruitment stalls were all over the centre of Rome, burly officers calling and cajoling to every able-bodied young man who passed them. Few freeborn Romans had lives hard enough to think the brutal training and long years in dangerous foreign battlefields had any appeal at all. For Lucius, it was escape. He slipped from the cart the next time they inched past one of the recruitment stalls, ignoring his father's shouts. They took him into the army the same day, Imperial Army. Now, he was a soldier of the Ninth. His only regret was that he knew his younger brother would now inherit the gruelling life he was running away from, and that he never saw his mother and family to say goodbye. In a few weeks, he had a new family. He joined their contubernium, the smallest unit of the army. Eight men shared a tent, food, bedding, a fire, and everything else day and night. There was Marcus, a wiry skinny boy the army had clearly expected to grow. He didn't, remaining a head shorter than any other soldier, but twice as loud and energetic to compensate. Cornelius, like Sextus, had been recruited from the Roman outposts below Egypt. The long journey up through Africa and across the Mediterranean had seasoned them both into experienced and steady recruits. The others called Sextus Grandad. At 17, he was the oldest of them all. Thracius was the son of a freed slave from North Africa. He was a Roman citizen, but his family still struggled to keep their footing in the slums of the great city. Thracius was quiet and wary, easily offended, but he took to Lucius from the first, understanding the weight of family expectation that burdened them both. Vetus was volatile and jumpy, loving to drink and dance, but terrible at keeping the rigid discipline of the legion. The others were always having to help him get kit ready for inspections, or pulling him from his sleeping roll to get him ready for morning parade. Simon, a farm boy like Lucius, rarely spoke, but his warm smile often lit up his face. And there was quiet, cheery Felix too, named for luck. Lucius stopped speaking, his eyes distant. The others, who had been smiling at his memory of their first meeting, were suddenly looking away. Marcus dropped his head into his knees, hiding his face. Thracius's throat moved, swallowing tears as he kept his gaze fixed on the darkness above them. Bill looked round. She didn't need to do a head count. There were only six legionaries with her in the cave. Lucius answered her unspoken question. Sextus. Sextus went in the battle. And later, the beast ate Simon. Chapter 3 The next dance had been the best part of Carr's new life. 
The night before she took her place guarding the entrance to the great chambered cairn, there was a massive celebration. Fires blazed in the dark. Drums and rattles thundered all night. Metal horns crowed. And her community's best singers called the tune and rhythm of the dancing that carried on till dawn. Carr loved to dance, whirling and whooping in reels and circle dances. She was the star of the night, the focus of all eyes, her family glowing in pride as she danced with everyone. The painted patterns on her face and arms had been replaced over the last few days with permanent tattoos. Carr bore the pricking pain of that work happily. The tattoos told the world she was an adult warrior now. Now as she danced, her decorated skin was flushed and glowing in the firelight, her hair whirling round her like a tree in the storm. At first grey light, they processed with her up to the mouth of the cairn. The outgoing guardian was waiting, a tall young woman, grinning to see them wind their way up to her. She had grown old enough to become a warrior, and her days watching the cairn were done. In retrospect, Carr thought she should have paid closer attention to that girl's obvious joy as she handed Carr the weapons of the guardian. There was a long spear-like shaft with horizontal spikes at its end, like a giant comb. There was a smaller piece of supple willow wood that had been bent to hold a thin slice of transparent rose quartz. The pink crystal filtered light to a rosy glow when Carr took it and held it up to the rising sun. Everyone cheered and stamped. The outgoing guardian handed her the final most important thing, a small carnix, a straight bronze horn with a snarling beast's head as its mouth. This was the horn Carr must blow if there was any danger from inside the cairn. This was her job, to guard the gate, all day, every day, only returning home when the sun had set. The dark was safe, but every second of daylight was dangerous. As Carr grasped the horn, the former guardian smiled at her in obvious relief, and Carr realised suddenly that her summer days were going to be very, very long. And then they all left her there. The former guardian ran ahead, whooping in joy. The others embraced Carr and praised her, and told her again that she was the very best of them, doing the most important job. Her mother had tears of pride in her eyes as she hugged Carr. But then they were all gone, hurrying off to their long, busy days together in the sunny woods and hills and meadows, and Carr was alone at the dark stone entrance to the cairn. It was good that she already knew how to talk to the crows. They swooped above her through the long days, soaring to see all the places Carr could no longer run to. But then they dropped to the hillside beside her and gave her all the news of everything that was happening in her paradise world. And the crows kept her connected to the importance of what she did. Not once did a jagged winged visitor land beside her without casting a quick sideways glance at the entrance to the cairn and cawing a harsh warning. Dark, dark. The crows reminded Carr of the purpose of what she did. It was a story, an old story but she knew it was true. Behind her, deep inside the cairn, was a gate to another world. No one knew when the gate would open, but the cairn had been built around it to guard this world from what lay beyond. On certain days, in high summer, or on the shortest, darkest days of winter, 
Shafts of sunlight reached into the cairn to touch the smooth stone wall that separated this world from the terror beyond. Those were the most dangerous days. The cairn had been constructed to make them clear, to clearly mark the moments of danger, to keep the guardian alert. On those days, Carr sat at the entrance staring along the beam of sunlight, cutting into the heart of the cairn, certain, sometimes, that she saw the stones start to shiver and transform. But any day was dangerous. The Guardian could never let their concentration waver while the sun was in the sky. It was the crows who reminded Carr what was on the other side of the wall of stone. A beast, and a warrior who held that beast back. The crows muttered it as they pecked at the soft turf after rain. Beast! Beast! Fighter! Beast! The fighter, her community's best warrior, had run through the gate the last time it opened. Not even Carr's grandmother remembered that day. It was generations ago. But Carr knew they were still in there. Might remain in there for hundreds of summers and winters, holding back the monster that would eat her son. If the gate ever opened, it would be because the warrior had been defeated and Carr would have to raise the alarm, blowing her bronze horn to let the next fighter know they had to run into the cairn. Carr held their weapons, ready to hand them to that running man or woman as they sped past on their way to hold back the dark. The comb-like spear and the shield of rose quartz were the weapons to fight the monster, and Carr knew who that warrior would be. It would be her elder brother, a laughing young man who still sometimes tried to pull Carr onto his shoulders and gallop her shrieking round the fire. She watched that gate on the days of particular danger with her heart thumping with dread, only relaxing when full night swallowed her up in shadow again. If the warning of the crows hadn't been reminder enough, there were also the stones. A line of them circled the hilltop around her. Sometimes one or two of her neighbours, skilled in stone carving and painting, would keep car company as they repaired the standing slabs. The stones showed the weapons the fighter was wielding somewhere in the dark, the comb and mirror. They showed the abstract shapes that were also tattooed on Carr's skin and theirs, the signs of the families who had sent warriors into the dark. They showed the companions and the guardians of the people who held the gate, the great bull, the mighty salmon, the ever-vigilant crows. And over and over, they showed the beast, the eater of light. Carr would stare at the carvings of this monster, trying to imagine what it must be like to battle it in endless night. It had a long, lizard-like body, trailing legs that tucked beneath its bulk, as if it was used to drifting through air or water, a long, threatening snout, pointed like a pikefish, and great, baleful green eyes that seemed to glare at Carr out of the stone. It was the worst horror Carr could imagine until the Romans came. Chapter 4 Lucius and the baggage boys had lived and worked together for over a year by the time they found themselves on the wall. The journey up through Roman Gaul was slow and uneventful, Lucius was already used to sleeping, head to toe, 
in a jumble of other bodies. He got used to the snores and kicks and smells of this new family of boy soldiers. He was already used to long, long days on dusty roads, guiding and tending plodding oxen. He never got used to how early that day now stopped, that he now had hours in his life to play games, to explore the new woods and fields the Legion was moving through to drink and eat and sleep. He felt he'd been given a life where before he'd only survived. He liked every single one of his seven tent companions. Probably his sense of escape and joy helped him there, as they didn't always get on with each other. Lucius found himself often the peacemaker, dragging Vetus off Marcus, or intervening in a shouting match between Felix and Simon. But however bitter the arguments over who'd drunk the last of the wine, or who'd kicked who in their sleep, they always made peace in the end. The happiest moments of Lucius's life so far were those he spent round their campfire each night, shouting and singing and laughing, till the harsh northern wine came out of his nose. Sextus was part of that joy. That understanding crept up on Lucius slowly. At first, his delight in every day, in every part of his new travelling life, concealed the very particular steady warmth that flowed through him every time he found himself sharing the lead on a cart with Sextus, or getting lost in a quieter conversation with the older boy as they lay drinking by the fire. He had no experience to help him name this new feeling. The others knew before he did. They were used to the quick passions that flared between them. A lot of the fighting between Marcus and Vetus came from that very source, but oddly, they did not subject Lucius and Sextus to the same teasing that those boys got. Everyone knew this was something slower, larger, more precious. Throughout the Legion, they could see couples like this, men bonded for the long term, closer than family and friends, men who were everything to each other. They knew these couples made the very best fighters, protecting each other's lives with more than just military discipline. Most of the others' strong preference meant they were often vanishing into the night to attempt conversation, and hopefully more, with any young woman or camp follower who'd returned their smiles. Felix would rail bitterly that Lucius and Sectus were never put on a charge or given latrine duty when they were caught in the shadows by the nightly patrols, but all the others in their contubernium were glad to see real love growing between Sextus and Lucius. Apart from anything else, Sextus, their granddad, the oldest and steadiest of them, often took a bigger burden of responsibility. They all knew that. They were all glad to see his happiness. It was on the wall that Sextus and Lucius first voiced what they both knew by then. They wanted to share this life together for all the future they could imagine. Sextus always said it was the cold that brought them together. It had a brutality that only Simon, raised in the icy northern Alps, had ever experienced before. To reach the wall, the boys and their terrified oxen were loaded on a flat galley. Even Sextus and Thracius, who had crossed the Mediterranean, clung white-knuckled and grim-faced to any hold they could find as the grey waves buffeted them to and fro while a salty, bitter wind blasted in their faces. Vetus didn't stop vomiting until the galley finally reached the huge river estuary of the Thames, and they glided under grey drizzle towards the sprawling camp of Londinium. 
It was a bleak and basic destination after the Roman cities and towns they were used to, but it would, in retrospect, feel like the last warm, safe place on earth. Beyond Londinium, the whole of this northern country felt as dangerous as that tossing icy sea. They tramped north through dark forests. Their feet were never dry. They were always cold. And unlike the Romanized fields and villas of modern Gaul, this country still felt only half subdued. They had to guard the wagons every night. At the head of the column, they would sometimes hear the shouts and screams of an attack. Rebel Britons darting from the dark depths of the forest to grab and steal. These attacks never succeeded, as the trained and disciplined soldiers easily cut down the screaming British warriors. The baggage boys would tramp past the dead and mutilated bodies, tossed in the ditch at the side of the road as the legion marched on. But then the British learned better tactics, and the attacks began to focus on them, the youngest soldiers at the very back of the army guarding the richest pickings. Lucius was on foot, guiding the patient oxen over a section of unpaved road. Further south, the army marched on well-made reinforced stone roads, slicing like arrows through the wilderness. Here, they were still making those paths, and the legion tramped slowly over mud and stones and through newly felled trees. Beyond the new gash of their track, the forest lined their path, thick and impenetrable. Lucius must have seen some movement in the dense green because he looked up to see a howling demon flying right at him. It hefted a heavy, iron-bladed axe and swung it back to strike right at Lucius's face. And then Sextus was there. Sextus ran in, apparently from nowhere, and slammed into the screaming warrior, knocking the demon sideways and down onto the ground. Sextus drove his sword down into the fallen body, yelling his own battle cry as Lucius still gaped blankly, frozen in shock. Sextus turned, shouting at Lucius, shouting at all of them, as more howling warriors swarmed in on them from all sides. Form up, now! And as they scrambled, terrified, to form a protective ring around the loaded baggage carts, Sextus ran to and fro, stabbing and shouting, waving his bloody sword to push back the attackers. It was probably only a minute before the soldiers ahead of them in line came piling back to help, a lethal, efficient charge of seasoned campaigners, pushing the baggage boys behind them as they cut down the attack and forced the robbers to run back into the trees. To Lucius, it was the longest minute of his life. From then on, a heavily armed and watchful section of the legion walked with them and behind them, older, stronger legionaries who never took their eyes off the forest as they marched on. In the tent that night, they couldn't speak about it, all of them still half paralyzed in shock. All these months in a fighting legion, most of them had never seen real fighting. They knew they would soon see more. They all knew that only Sextus had saved them in those first chaotic seconds. Lucius knew he could have died. He could have seen Sextus die, defending him. Both thoughts chased each other round his head, and that night he lay close to Sextus, gripping onto him even as they slept. He couldn't lose him, and he hated the wild people they still glimpsed watching them from the trees, or saw running away as the legion marched through their settlements. 
He was told these were all different peoples, different tribes, most of them already defeated by Rome or willingly offering allegiance, bowing to the military machine that tramped over their meagre crops. Lucius didn't care, didn't see any difference in these groups of wary people, staring, blank-faced at him, wearing their strange layers of woolen clothes, peering through wild coils of hair. They were all the same threat, and he hated them all. And that was how it was until they reached the wall. He stood beside Sextus on the high battlement, staring up over the lines of darkly wooded hills stretching northwards, his stomach knotted in dread. He voiced his fear. Once you're sent to the edge of empire, you never get back, do you? We'll be here forever now. And then he felt all the warmth of Sextus's hard body as the other man moved behind him, wrapping his arms round Lucius, warm breath soft in his ear. Then we're together forever now, aren't we? And Lucius's heart nearly burst with joy, and suddenly the bitter wind didn't bother him at all. Yes, he said, forever. Chapter 5 Carr's community lived all their days remembering their duty to guard the gate. Their gaze went to the sky, always noticing the changes in the light as the seasons changed and the days shortened and then grew again. They were the guardians of that cycle. They protected the whole world and that was the centre of everything they did, of the designs they carved in stone, the songs they sang, the dances they danced. But they knew there was a larger world. They knew there were changes beyond their borders. They knew about the strange soldiers who had made their way north a generation ago. They knew there was now a great wall of stone spanning the whole width of the country, dividing the tribes of the north from those far to the south. The fierce soldiers in their skins of metal and leather walked up and down that huge barrier in their shining helmets day and night. They stopped all trade and treaty between the northern and southern tribes. They rode out from the safety of the wall to kill and pillage, demanding that communities accept the rule of Rome. Was Rome a king? A god? Carr's family didn't know. The Romans slaughtered those who stood against them, and they took all the supplies they could carry back to the wall. For what? Carr's mother always said. Why do they take all the food, all the cattle? If they're hungry, someone will have enough to share. But the Romans clearly didn't want to share. They wanted all the food, all the cattle, forever. And every year, more of them came further north. They were trying to spread. They were trying to change and control all the lands and peoples they could reach. But the wall was weeks of walking to the south, the land between Carr's world and that line of occupation was treacherous to men who travelled in great columns all marching in a line. There were so many forests and cliffs and rivers and mountains in the way. Carr didn't believe she would ever actually see a Roman legionary. The crows called their news of fighting far away, on the other side of the hills. The first warning they had was when the other tribes started to arrive. A trickle of fighting men and women flowing over the hills, 
carrying all the weapons they had. The tribes had united. The communities had discussed and come together. They were gathering under the leadership of one man, Kalikos, to beat back the invaders once and for all. At the start of winter, a huge force of Romans had moved north from the wall, thousands of men and horses, cutting a gash through forests and fields and settlements. As they came, they destroyed everything and everyone in their path, all the houses and shelters, all the beasts and all the food that had been stored and preserved to last till spring. It was all gone. There was no choice now. If they didn't defeat the Roman army, if they didn't win back the stolen food, they would all starve. Calacos's plan was simple. They would lure the Romans further and further north, moving ahead as fast as they could, bringing all the food they could carry, enough to survive a few weeks. They would gather a great force on high ground, overlooking a valley where Romans would have to find water and grazing for their horses. They would ambush them there and slaughter them all. It was a plan that required the consent of scattered communities throughout the north, some of whom had been feuding with sharp weapons for generations. But the threat of the Roman horde united them all. This ravenous, armoured military monster would devour them unless they stood together. Now the tribes were gathering in the flat meadows around Carr's home. More and more of them arrived every day, and the Romans were closer and closer behind them. At first, Carr and Ban and their older brothers and sisters were simply overwhelmed with the excitement of all these new faces, more people than they'd ever seen or known. Along with the other children, they ran through the camp, staring at all the new arrivals, bombarding them with questions. They showed them their world, their paradise, where the great cattle grazed, where the salmon rose. They translated the clamour of the crows, proud of their skill in understanding their speech. Each evening after sunset, her duty by the cairn ended. Carr raced to sit at the stranger's fires and hear a hundred new stories. But as the weeks passed and the small camp became a huge settlement of smoking fires and weary warriors, a new mood set in. A battle was coming. They all knew it. It came closer every day. Carr watched, spellbound, as the charismatic young Kalikos addressed the gathering. He was slight and wiry, not a man you'd consider twice unless you heard him speak. He didn't shout or posture, he simply stated truths with steady certainty. They're coming. They mean to kill all those who can fight and to enslave those who can't. They will not negotiate. We must destroy them now, or our communities will be annihilated. Carr's family and neighbours knew what was at stake. The Romans would not care about their sacred task, holding back the monsters in the hollow hill. The Romans would not recognise Carr's woods and fields as paradise. They would destroy it all. And that would be the end of the known world. Everyone in Carr's family, her mother, her father, her older brothers and sisters, everyone except her little brother Ban, was getting ready to fight. And then it wasn't an exciting game anymore. It was the time before a battle, and there was never a battle in which some people didn't die. But even knowing that, even gripped by the fear that made her hold her mother tight every night before they slept, that made her run to do anything her father asked and hang onto her brothers and sisters as if she might lose them if she even blinked, 
even flooded with all that fear, Carr never thought they would all die. Chapter 6 The doctor's gaze at Carr was relentless. There was knowledge and compassion in it, sure, but he was still going to drag terrible truth from her, unraveling her in agony. You saw the battle. Carr nodded, swallowing hard. She didn't want to remember this. She couldn't afford to remember this. It would destroy her. The doctor put a gentle hand on her shoulder, not comfort exactly, but a steadying prop that strengthened her. Take a breath. She did so, eyes blind in memory. I just need to know timings. The order of events, it's important. The doctor's voice was calm and firm, cooling her chaotic distress. Carr took another breath and began to describe how her world had ended. Bill had to lean closer to Lucius as his voice dropped. His face was blank, his gaze blind in memory. She put a hand on his shoulder. We were winning, though, he said. We were beating them. The Ninth Legion had marched north from the Wall, 6,000 legionaries and support, thousands more cavalry, an invading army. That was their task, to drive through the lands that still resisted Roman rule, burning and destroying, subduing the rebel tribes. They met virtually no resistance. The wild tribes seemed to run before they even arrived, leaving all their land and food to plunder. The legion travelled faster and faster, cutting through forests, marching over marshes, treading the fresh timbers the hundreds of engineers laid under their feet even as they trampled forward. They were part of an unstoppable force surging through the wilderness. They all felt their fear recede as it seemed all they had to fight was the harsh landscape. Fearsome as that was, they were strong enough and fit enough to conquer it and they felt stronger every day. Probably their commanders knew they would be facing battle sooner or later. The scouts who ran ahead of the army would have brought the intelligence of rapidly retreating enemy forces, the huge numbers building up somewhere in the mountains ahead. But that knowledge and the fear of it didn't reach the baggage boys on their wild ride at the back of the column. They were told to be ready to fight every day, they drilled in battle formations regularly, but that was part of the work of a legionary. So Lucius had no fear as the military column swung into a narrow valley, following the descending ground towards a flat river plain at the valley bottom, a place to water and camp. The Caledonians were waiting. They were arranged at the other end of the glen like an audience in an amphitheatre, standing in a horseshoe formation running up the hillside on either side, thousands and thousands of them. 
Even as the front columns of the Ninth Legion halted and the rapid orders were shouted back through the ranks, the soldiers around Lucius were forming up. Shields were clamped together in a defensive wall. Swords were drawn. The baggage carts and the boys who guided them were rapidly enclosed in a barrier of other soldiers, ready to defend the precious supplies against any attack. And then they moved forward again, towards the waiting army. Carr's guard post, high on the hill, gave her no view of the battle. The first sense she had that the fight had begun was a huge roar, a monstrous sound that sent every crow into the sky shouting its own warning. Carr stood at her post at the mouth of the cairn, guarding the dark, and every part of her strained towards the shoulder of the hill, towards the view of the valley beyond. No guardian had ever left their post, not while the sun shone, not for hundreds of years. Carr heard the roar of thousands of war cries, change and rise as the massed shout was now mingled with screams. She dropped the guardian's weapons to the ground. She abandoned the great horn. She ran to see the battle. Lucius could see nothing of the battle ahead, but he was aware they were moving forward. He had his sword out, as instructed in a terse command from Sextus. He had his shield in front of him, braced against the edge of Simon's shield on one side of him, and Vetus's shield on the other. All he could see were the armoured backs of the legionaries ahead of him. On either side, more soldiers hemmed them in, a tight press that barely allowed him to move or breathe but then they stamped forward, relentless step after relentless step, and each legionary filled their lungs and huffed out a hoarse yell of aggression with each stride. And Lucius braced his shield, tightened his grip on his sword, and yelled with them. At first, Carr didn't understand what she was seeing. She looked down into the valley and saw a boiling mass of moving bodies. For a second, she blinked, her head adjusting to the sense of what she saw. It looked like a swarming anthill when a hedgehog had split it open to feast on the interior. She saw tiny figures tumbling away from a larger armoured shape that inched up the hill, devouring everything ahead of its jaws. Then she realised the true scale of what she was looking at. The Ninth Legion, intact, holding together as a moving wall of shields, was advancing uphill. But that wasn't possible, was it? Kalikos had said no force could attack uphill. He'd said they couldn't fail. Carr watched in horror as the inhuman shape of thousands of men moving as one cut further and further into the Caledonian fighters who hurled themselves at the head and flanks of the Roman war machine. And even from high above, Carr could see what happened then. She saw those warriors fall, trampled, slashed, dying. Even from up here, she could see the flailing limbs. She could see the blood. She was watching the slaughter of everyone she knew, everyone she loved. There were hardly any of her fighters standing now. The last few were still running at the sides of the hideous Roman war turtle, desperate, beaten but still trying. 
But now the massed legion split at its head into two pincers. Columns of soldiers still moving in close-packed unison curved out of the front rank of the legion and behind the last struggling Caledonians, surrounding them, cutting them off, cutting them down. Carr was making hoarse, anguished cries of distress, turning round and round, looking to the sky, looking behind her, searching for help, something, anything. And she saw the withered, skeletal figure crawl out of the cairn behind her and collapse on the sunlit grass. Lucius could feel the massed bodies around him surging faster forward. He was jostled with fierce movement as the legionaries to either side of him fought and stabbed at the bodies they were cutting through. The rhythmic shouts grew louder, more triumphant. He could still see nothing, but he knew they were winning. He shouted with the rest, relief and fierce elation running through him. Carr looked down at the shriveled creature gasping their last in the doorway of the cairn. The dying warrior's eyes were wide in the sockets of their skull. Their voice was a desperate, ragged whisper, the last piece of life fighting through bared teeth. It's coming! She looked at the warrior's weapons abandoned on the grass, the curved willow staff holding a mirror-like slice of rose quartz, the great spear with its comb-like head. She looked at the horn she should blow to summon the next defender, her brother, already dead in the valley behind her. She knew that the gate she guarded held back a creature that would destroy everyone and everything, but the Romans had already destroyed the world anyway. Now the beast could eat them. In that moment, she didn't care what else might happen. She just wanted every Roman dead, every Roman in the world. So Carr watched the warrior die at her feet and bared her own teeth and whispered, let it come. For a moment, nothing happened. But then the cairn shook. A low rumble that seemed to shake the whole hill beneath her feet. The crows, already airborne, flocked together calling in high, hoarse agitation, in terror. Beast! 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 And then it came... It flowed out of the mouth of the cairn like a moving shadow. It filled the whole doorway with moving, surging darkness in which two huge green eyes pulsed with ghastly, dull fire, staring out at her. Then its long snout probed out into the daylight. As Carr watched in horror, long, writhing tentacles coiled out from that hideous proboscis. They shot out over the sunlit grass, searching. They quested up into the air, and all the crows scattered at once, flying in terror to every corner of the sky. In disbelief, Carr saw the light of the sun seem to dim. She saw light flowing into every tentacle like wisps of bright smoke. The beast was drinking the sunlight out of the sky. It paused a moment, as if savouring this feast of warmth. Its tentacles coiled back into its snout. And then it sprang out of the cairn, 
and was gone over the side of the hillside in a series of terrifying bounds. A long, dark, lizard body propelled by huge, rounded limbs. Carr crouched on the hillside, shaking with shock. Then she went to look. The first hint that Lucius had of what was about to happen was when the rhythmic, triumphant shouts of the army ahead faltered and broke into a chaotic jumble of warning shouts, into screams. Then the men ahead of him were suddenly surging back. The tight-packed formation of soldiers and shields broke into a fleeing mob, faces blank with terror. Lucius was pushed, jostled. He yelled in alarm, felt Simon and Vetus torn away on either side of him as the military machine became a broken, churning monster of terrified men, as it ate itself from within. Lucius was knocked flying and trampled, the breath stamped out of him by the feet of fleeing soldiers. For a moment, everything went dark. When he blinked back to consciousness, the light around Lucius seemed dim and grey. He wondered if night was here already, but he'd only lost consciousness for a few moments. Around him, the other baggage boys were scattered where they had been knocked over. He saw Thracius sitting up, dazed, holding his bleeding head. Beside him, Marcus was already on his feet, staring at something, shaking, and he could hear Felix close by, whimpering in terror. Lucius turned and looked too. He didn't understand what he saw. It was a beast, that was clear, but like no creature he'd ever seen. A huge reptilian shape of darkness with great glowing green eyes that contained no flicker of intelligence, only blind greed. The beast was feeding. It turned its long snout to and fro, long tentacles whipping over the battlefield as it did so. It stood on a mound of corpses, dead legionaries, and from this vantage point it quested for more. Lucius watched in horror, as a wounded, trampled legionary nearby pulled himself upright and tried to run. The black tentacles shot towards the movement. They slapped onto the man's body, his face, his skin. The man gave a hoarse scream. Horribly cut off, he jerked for a second like a fish on a hook. Then Lucius saw him shrivel. His skin went grey, his eyes became lifeless. Something vital was literally sucked from him, as Lucius watched, and then the man's withered corpse dropped onto the heap at the monster's feet. The great head turned towards Lucius and the other boys, the last Roman standing in a litter of the dead. The long tentacles of darkness coiled towards them. And Sextus was there, whirling his sword, pushing Lucius back, shouting at all of them, Run! Run! In the cave, Bill waited for Lucius to continue. The young man's head had dropped. His throat swallowed sobs he wouldn't let out as he waited for composure. When he spoke, his voice was ragged with grief and guilt. We did. We ran. And that's why, of the whole Ninth Legion... We're the only ones still alive.
Their frantic flight drove them along the river. The water was lower then, the entrance to this cave just visible on the bank. Marcus, splashing into the shallows as if the water might stop the terrible creature behind them, gave a shout of relief as he saw it. He scrambled and wriggled into the stone tunnel. They all followed, but Lucius looked back. He saw the beast lift Sextus's grey, shriveled corpse into the air with writhing tentacles and let it fall, lifeless, to the ground. And above, high on the hill, Carr saw the evening shadows lengthen as the sun dipped below the horizon. She watched as the terrible creature she'd unleashed rested a moment among the scattered heaps of the dead pulsing a little, as if it was still absorbing its monstrous feast. Then it glided into the shadows of the forest and disappeared. Book Three Chapter One Carr crouched now on the same hillside, unable to meet the doctor's eyes as he looked down at her. Around them, the other Pictish survivors listened and watched, sombre and silent. They knew this story. They shared her grief. Ban moved closer to his sister, leaning against her as she struggled to finish speaking. It's still there. Carr whispered, feeding every day. It drinks the light out of the air. It destroys every creature it finds. A more accurate description would be to say it breathes the light and eats the life. The doctor was mentally calculating, seeming to lose interest in her and her distress now he finally had all the information he needed. Specifically, it feeds off the vitamin D in any living creature, but once it's strong enough, the light alone will probably sustain it. His gaze had gone to the carved stones at the crest of the hill. So those stones are positioned to indicate the movement of the sun, correct? Carr just nodded mutely. The doctor was making rapid, intuitive calculations. So we're close to the winter solstice, the shortest day. After that, the days will grow longer again, more light for it to breathe in. Carr was watching him with desperate hope. Do you know what it is? Yes, I do now. Can we kill it? No. Show me those weapons. I take it they are weapons. Carr was still carrying them, the weapons she should have handed to her dead brother, to the warrior who would hold back the dark. For a moment she hesitated, then, slowly, she held them out to the doctor. He examined them closely, two long spears of wood, one ending in horizontal teeth of iron like a comb, the other with a thin sheet of transparent rose quartz set into the end of the shaft. The doctor held this up to the sky, seeing the pale winter light turn red as it was filtered through the thin crystal. He grinned. Clever! Weapons to drive back a monster that eats light. You could never kill it, but you learned how to hold it at bay. 
He tossed the weapons back to Carr and looked back at the cairn, still working this out. But it's too late for that solution now. This is only one beast, but the rest will follow. Think of it as the scout from an anthill, a little scurrying worker sent out to find food and carry their news back to the nest. If it goes back now and the gate is still open, the rest of the colony will soon stream through it in their thousands. Nardal was liking the sound of this less and less. He wasn't so much asking a question as looking for confirmation of his sense of dread. And then what? The doctor's tone was almost absent, detached, his mind clearly still working through possible scenarios. Then they'll eat the sun and move on to the next. They'll breathe in all the light in the universe. Nardal blinked. That was actually even worse than he'd feared. So, what do we do now? The doctor focused on him then, his brow furrowing in irritation. I've already told you, we find Bill. Bill looked round at the silent, defeated, exhausted and starving men who surrounded her. None of them had spoken since Lucius described the death of Sextus. The grief of that shared memory seemed to have immobilised them. Lucius sat hunched over, staring at the rocky ground. Vetus had closed his eyes. All of the others gazed unseeing into the dark around them. For a moment, nobody moved. Bill spoke gently, sensing how close to collapse she might push them. So... How will you get out of here? Vetus's eyes snapped open, blazing hatred. There is no way out of here. You think we haven't looked? Simon volunteered to try going out through the river again. Marcus still stared past Bill, as if eyeing his own despair. He went to see if that thing was gone. Lucius looked up then the pain clear on his face. We saw those tentacles. Grab him. Bill's eyes slid to the back of the cave, to the place where it narrowed into a dark cleft, partially blocked with fallen rocks. Lucius followed her gaze. We went a little way along there. They were right above us. We could hear them. Bill was confused. Hear who? Cornelius spat the words out. The barbarians. They're all up there. We could hear them laughing at us. Lucius frowned at him. They weren't laughing. Cornelius just shook his head. They're alive and we're all dead. That monster is their creature, their weapon. They let it loose on us. Felix stirred. He hadn't spoken for a long time and his voice was a weak thread. The monster ate them too. Cornelius shook his head again, firm in his grim certainty. Not all of them. And they're monsters too, barbarians. They don't care who dies as long as they win. Lucius closed this down, turning back to Bill. We ran back here. Then the roof collapsed. There's no way out. Bill nodded. She tried to keep her voice gentle. All right, so what's the plan? 
You can't mean to just sit here till you starve. They were all looking at her then, but there was no hope or possibility of hope on any face. Bill sensed she had one chance to get this right. These young men were almost catatonic with stress. Soon they would close down altogether, sinking, without further struggle, towards their inevitable deaths. Did anyone else stand against the creature? Lucius shook his head. Could anyone have stood against it? Fought back? His silence was answer enough. Of course they couldn't. Bill pressed on. Everyone ran. It was the only thing to do. Sextus. Lucius flinched in pain as he heard his loss named, but Bill kept going, gentle and relentless. Sextus wasn't just your love, your life, was he? He was your superior officer, and he ordered you to run. So you did. That's why you survived. That's why the Ninth Legion still survives. She looked round their ghostly faces. You were the only ones quick enough and resourceful enough to live. And now you have to keep the Legion alive too. I came here because of your fame. The Ninth Legion. Everyone knows your story. Cornelius twisted his mouth sceptically. What story? Bill hesitated for the briefest second. The story of how you all vanished without a trace? No, she wasn't saying that. Now, now we should find out the story of what you do next. Marcus's small body was hunched round his bony knees, his voice a whisper. What can we do? They were all staring at her, but she kept her eyes focused on Lucius, willing him to rouse himself from despair. She pointed at the dark water. We can't leave that way. We know the monster is there. She was watching him intently, hoping he'd follow her lead. Lucius's attention turned to the narrow passage leading upwards out of the cave. He swallowed. When he spoke, his voice was hoarse but determined. Legionaries, if there are barbarians up there, they're only human. Humans we can face. We have to. They were all looking at Lucius now. Bill saw a flicker of energy start to light them up. Lucius continued. We're soldiers of the Ninth. Then he repeated it, almost shouted it, suddenly alive with determination and defiance. We are soldiers of the Ninth. Say it. Say it! Then Vetus was on his feet. Marcus uncurled and screwed up his small face in defiance as he shouted, as they all shouted, Soldiers of the Ninth! Chapter 2 The doctor was walking fast downhill again, Nardal scrambling behind him. Carr, half running, was still at his side. Ban and the other warrior children hurried after them. Why do you need this woman, Bill? asked Carr. Can she help you defeat the beast? The doctor's attention was all on the river valley below, on the forest that filled the lower valley. His words were distracted. 
I told you, we can't defeat it. You never have, you never will, and death and destruction solves nothing. We have to get it out of here, and more importantly, we have to get that gate closed behind it. But before we do any of that, I need to find Bill. Carr was brimming with the anger of someone who's lost everything, watching another persist in hope. But I told you, she's gone. What good is she to us anyway? The doctor gave no sign he'd heard, stopping abruptly to scan the woods below. His fierce gaze seemed capable of travelling through the tree canopy, of scanning everything beneath. It was Nardal who answered Carr, his voice low, confiding. Bill fills in the missing pieces. Carr looked at Nardal, uncomprehending. She glanced again at the doctor. She can solve his problems. Nardal nodded. All the missing pieces. Carr looked at the doctor, glaring down, hawk-like, from their high perch. A ripple of sorrow and empathy moved through her. That was loss she understood. The doctor swung to face her, his voice commanding. Ask the crows. Carr swallowed hard. This was another loss, another terrible grief. They're scattered, gone. I can hear them screaming in the corners of the sky. They're shouting about darkness and death. They won't come to me. The doctor's gaze swept the silent forest canopy again. We saw them circling the battlefield. We saw them. Nardal prompted him. At the stones. The doctor was already heading for the line of standing stones below the cairn. After a hesitant moment, Carr and the little Picts followed him. The sun came out from the clouds again, bathing them momentarily in pale winter light. He called over his shoulder. Hurry, the sun's getting stronger. Soon the doctor was standing at the carved stones, looking up at a sky full of crows. They were high, distant, a wheeling flock of corvids, spinning and circling in the pale winter sky, their urgent calls a cacophony of hoarse terror. Carr moved to stand beside the doctor, staring up, her eyes brimming. They're frightened to ever touch the earth again, she said. They won't leave the sky while the beast is on the ground. The doctor's keen gaze was fixed on the flock. But they're brave. Look. From this side of the hill, they could see another stretch of forest. As they watched, groups of birds dropped from the main flock, plummeting to skim the tree canopy below, shrieking harsh calls. They're harrying it, he went on. It's how they would defend the roost from a hawk or a bear. Carr's eyes widened. Then it's still there. It's still in the forest. You were hoping it might have run away over the hills to eat someone else's universe? The doctor's tone wasn't quite as harsh as his words, but Carr still flinched in shame. He kept his eyes on the sky. Yes, it's still there. Nardal frowned. So... What's it doing? Why doesn't it attack? The doctor was trying to find crows at the edge of the flock, those that might see them and respond. He answered distractedly. It takes a python two weeks to digest a human. This is another devouring predator. 
It's got a Roman army to digest, and it needs to keep breathing light while it's working on that. The low sun broke through the clouds again. The doctor pointed suddenly. There. As the sunlight lit up the hillside in the forest, they saw it. Tendrils of light were being sucked from the air like smoke and vanishing into the forest below. It's dormant, said the doctor, but it's still feeding. The attacking crows soared back up to the circling flock as if suddenly terrified. Nardal watched them. But it can't reach the crows. They're too high up. The doctor nodded, and they're making too much noise. It doesn't like noise. Good to know. Ban was close behind them. His voice was low, his exhausted face showing little emotion. There was a lot of noise when everyone died, he said. The doctor considered him for a second, and his tone was more gentle as he continued. I'd imagine that's another reason it's been lying low since the battle. Recovering. That's lucky. That's a good thing. The doctor waited until Ban nodded. Then, suddenly commanding, he raised himself to his full height and stretched an arm out to the sky. News! The word boomed out as an order. The circling flock pulsed and surged as the birds swooped to see the source of this command. The doctor kept his eyes on the birds, his arm raised towards them. Carr was still watching the flock too. The great carrying crow will come, she said, with quiet confidence. She will. She doesn't fear anything. Sure enough, as they watched, a large, jagged, winged shape detached from the edge of the circling flock and dropped towards them like a plummeting stone. A heavy crow with great shadowy wings and inky eyes landed on the doctor's hand like a hawk returning to a falconer, it was a truly dramatic moment. Until the doctor winced. Go on the stone now. The bird flapped to perch on the carved monolith as the doctor shook out his hand. Falconer's gloves. Never have them about you when you need them. He addressed the bird, ducking his head respectfully. Queen of the forest and the hill, servant of the dead, I salute you. Nardal watched, amazed as the iron-grey chisel of the bird's beak dipped in response to this salute. The doctor asked again, not a command now, a respectful request. News, please. What do you see? The bird cocked its head. Its glittering black eye looked sideways at the doctor. Beast. The doctor nodded gravely. Yes, we know. We see where it is. Gate. Gate. The doctor sighed, his fears confirmed. He turned to the others. 
The gate is unstable now, since the beast broke through. Carr already understood the stilted, cryptic language of the crows. She finished the translation. The gate will open again soon. The doctor's face was grim. And the swarm is on the other side, waiting to follow their scout, their soldier aunt. He turned back to the bird, his voice urgent now. My friend, Bill, where is she? For a moment, the bird made no sound. It turned its head from side to side, watching them from first one eye, then the other. To Nardal, it seemed as if the crow was searching for the words. At last, it spoke, another hoarse call. Under. For the first time, the doctor was at a loss. He looked to Carr, urgently demanding translation. What does she mean? The bird spoke again. Bill. All. Underneath. Carr understood. The population of Carr's community rose and fell as weather and seasons dictated how many mouths could be fed through the months of the ice and winter winds. They always needed stored food to last through the darkness to the months of sunlight, and they needed access to flowing water when the air was so bitter even the great cattle huddled in a herd and lowered their soft noses together to shield them from the driving snow. So Carr's people had built the tunnels. With the same skill they'd used to build the great chambered cairn with its passages and rooms guarding the gate, they built a tunnel from their thatched hall to the side of the river, a safe road they could walk on frozen days to draw water in leather buckets. They built storerooms off the tunnel, closer to the floor of the hall, dry chambers they lined with stones to keep their surplus grain and roots and dried fish. But the current community had shrunk smaller than those of previous generations. Only the highest, smallest of the storage chambers tunneled out of the earth were in use. Those further down were empty, crumbling, their lining stones dropping and eroding, needing repair. The path to the river had to be dug out and restored every year. Sections of the roof collapsed regularly as the earth above shifted and moved in ice and flood. No one had done that work yet this year. Now no one would. All the women and men who would have dug out the roof falls and braced the walls with new stone were dead. But the tunnels were still there. Your friends in the tunnels, said Carr. They're all in the tunnels. She looked back to her village, to her hall on the other side of the glen. The doctor waved his arm, releasing the crow back into the air. Stay close, he called as it soared over them. Keep watch for us. He was already moving again, and the others scrambled after him. They headed down the hill and skirted the edge of the forest below. They moved fast. The doctor's long legs made light work of the rough ground, and they were all running to keep up with him, Carr and the other young Picts throwing nervous glances at the shadows under the trees, knowing the beast lurked in the forest there. It's still semi-dormant digesting, the doctor reminded them as they stumbled in his wake. It must have expended enormous energy, forcing its way into this universe and then destroying the armies. We have a little time, but not much. Then he spotted something on the boggy earth, he grabbed it up, barely pausing. It was a pebble of rosy quartz. He held it above his head as he marched on. 
shouting back at the procession of young Picts hurrying behind him. Pick these up! Any stone like this, we need all of them. Carr had recognized the pebble. She added her command to his. Gather the sacred stones! She snatched up one herself. In the gathering dusk, they splashed through a tumbling burn of clear water, chuckling over its stones. The Picts paused there a moment, grabbing up the paler pebbles of quartz they spotted on the bed of the stream before running on. Nardal squelched at the tail of the group, pausing to stare glumly at his sodden, ruined slippers. They were the last trace of his old clothes, the dressing gown and pyjamas abandoned days ago for the woolen leggings and colourful tunic of the Picts. Now the slippers were soggy, muddy weights on his feet. He sighed, considering kicking them off. He called after the others plaintively. I need socks. Has anyone got some dry socks? They were all hurrying ahead of him up the slope. Nardal sighed again and trudged after them, each step a wet squelch of protest. He looked up towards the village, willing it closer. From below, it seemed part of the hilltop, walls of green turf circling it and blocking it from view. Only one wisp of blue smoke suggested settlement. As they climbed closer, the tops of roofs, thatched in grass and river reeds, emerged over the grass rampart. Nardal could see the nervous huddle of smaller children they'd left guarding the wall, peering down anxiously. He waved up at them cheerfully. Carr was still right at the doctor's elbow, matching his pace, firing anxious questions. We've got till morning to find your friend, haven't we? It won't attack in the dark. We know that. The doctor's expression remained grim. We don't know that. We know it'll be weaker in the dark, but we don't know when it will rouse itself again. But without the sun, what can it do? The doctor threw a glance up at the darkening sky. Go looking for another source of light and food. Chapter 3 Bill was close behind Lucius as he started to scrabble at the fallen earth and stone at the back of the cave. She started to work beside him, passing the rubble back behind her. Soon the others crowded round to help, using their hands to pull away the fresh roof fall. Lucius was breathless with effort, blinking muddy sweat out of his eyes. Can't see what I'm doing. The shadows at the back of the cave were deepening as the shaft of daylight from above faded. Vetus scrabbled in his pack, pulling out a little stoppered terracotta lamp. Seeing what he was doing, the others followed suit, pulling out their own lamps and lighting them from the embers of the fire. The cave lit up with their flames. The passageway at the back of the cave was clear. Lucius peered into the darkness ahead. He turned back to look at the bedraggled remainder of the Ninth Legion. Bring everything, whatever happens, we're not coming back here. The others started to gather up their few belongings, pulling little packs on their backs. Bill smiled at Lucius. We're going to be all right. 
We're going to be all right because somewhere up there, the doctor will be looking for us. When you meet him, you'll understand. He's my friend, and we're part of his story now. The Ninth Legion is part of his story, and he will not tolerate an unhappy ending. He just won't. Lucius looked at her dubiously. I don't think we have any friends here now. She touched his arm, willing reassurance into him. It'll be okay. You'll see. He grinned back at her, the smile lighting up his grubby face. Well, live or die, we're still the Ninth Legion. She nodded. Yes, you are. Marcus shouted from behind them, half joking. Soldiers of the Ninth, advance! The others gave a ragged cheer, crowding behind them. Lucius took a lamp and walked in front, holding it high, lighting up the tunnel ahead. Bill and the others followed, their lamps making a blaze of light in the narrow passage. As they left the cave, something snaked slowly out of the dark water behind them, questing, probing, towards their receding light. A tentacle of darkness. The hall was dark, the light outside nearly gone. One of the children ran forward to kick the smouldering fire into a blaze. The doctor called out, stopping the girl in her tracks. No, he said. No more light. He turned back to Carr, urgent now. The tunnels. Where exactly are they? Silently, Carr pointed at a dip in the earthen floor. A flat stone was set in the earth. The doctor hurried over and prized up the edge of the stone. Nardal went to help him, and together they flipped the stone up and over onto the earthen floor. They stood looking down into the dark tunnel that opened below. Ban appeared beside them, holding a stout branch of wood, its end wrapped in dry grass and soaked in tallow. You'll need a torch. The doctor's voice was sharp. I told you, no light. Carr was already pushing past him. I'll go ahead then. I know these chambers and... The doctor cut her off, gripping her shoulder to pull her back from the edge of the ladder that led down into the dark. This isn't your job, is it? You carry the weapons to battle the monster, but you don't use them. That's for others to do. He held out his hand. After a moment, shamed and angry, Carr handed over the strange weapons of quartz, mirror and comb. The doctor hefted them as he got ready to descend into the dark, but then he paused. Listen. Crowding round the entrance to the tunnels, they all listened. Faintly, they heard it, somewhere in the darkness below. The sound of approaching voices. The legionaries and Bill had reached the larger storage chambers. They were able to stand up without their heads grazing the earthen roof. They raised their lamps, looking round at the empty chamber. Lucius pointed to a doorway into a room beyond. We got as far as that last time. There's a ladder there. It must come up right in the middle of them. Felix was peering ahead, tense. We heard them, a crowd of them. Can't hear them now, but... Thracius was suddenly rigid with alarm, wheeling to look behind them. Listen. They all turned staring in growing terror at the shadows behind them. 
Then they all heard it. A quiet, sibilant hiss. As they watched in horror, something snaked out of those shadows. A long, dark tentacle questing towards the light of their lamps. Peering past the doctor, Nardal heard shouts and screams of alarm from the darkness below. He could see lights moving rapidly towards them. Dimly glimpsed figures were scrambling into the chamber below, running for the ladder. Bell, this way, the doctor shouted. This way, quick. He raised the mirror weapon and turned to Ban. Light that torch. Nardal was confused. But you said no light. The doctor shouted over him. Light that torch and stand behind me. As Ban ran to obey, a terrified legionary scrambled up the ladder, knocking the doctor aside, and collapsed on the floor of the hall. The Picts fell back in alarm. Card drew her knife. The doctor was hefting the mirror weapon, forcing his way back to the top of the ladder as two more legionaries tumbled out of the tunnel. The doctor shouted into the dark again. Bill! Bill! Drop your lights and run! Lucius and Bill stood side by side, watching in horror as the tentacles crawled towards them. Get out! Lucius shouted. Legionaries, get out! Thracius, Marcus and Vetus had already escaped through the tunnel. There was a terrified scramble for the ladder as the others leapt to follow. Cornelius was at the foot of the ladder now, calling back to Lucius to hurry. Then, with a rush of fierce joy, Bill heard the doctor's voice above them, shouting down into the chambers. Bill, drop your lights and run! The doctor, he's there, I knew it, come on! She pulled at Lucius. He was facing up to the monstrous tentacles, hefting his sword. Lucius! But he wouldn't move, terrified but determined to guard the retreat. Then Cornelius suddenly turned back from the ladder, pushing past Lucius to face the monster with him. Cornelius was screaming in anger and fear, whirling his sword. Forward the nine! He hurled his lamp straight at the darkness and writhing tentacles that coiled out of it. Bill screamed. No! There was a blaze of light as the lamp smashed and burning oil splashed over the floor and walls of the cavern. Bill had a brief glimpse of a huge, sinuous creature filling the tunnel behind them. Large, insect-like, bulbous green eyes, writhing tentacles streaming from its shadowy snout. For a moment, Cornelius was silhouetted against the blaze of fire, sword raised. Then, the tentacles shot out, slapping onto him, dragging him back into the tunnel as he screamed in terror. All the light of the blazing oil went out as it was instantly sucked into the same probing snout. Bill wrenched at Lucius, knowing this was life and death. Come on! They both ran. The doctor scowled at the startled Picts. They'd fallen back as the Romans leapt from the floor, frightened and uncertain. Now he bellowed at them. Make some noise, loud as you can. Carr started first, screaming and stamping. 
After a moment, the other Picts joined in, drumming the floor with their feet, yelling and howling. The doctor shouted to Ban, Hold up that torch, now! Ban stood behind the doctor, holding up the blazing branch. The doctor held up the shaft of the weapon with its thin disc of rose quartz, held it right in front of the torchlight. The light of the flame steamed through the thin crystal, turning rosy red. The doctor angled it so that the blaze of red light shone straight down into the caverns below, just as another Roman, eyes wide in terror, scrambled up the ladder and ran into the hall. The doctor strained forward, peering down past the ladder, poised to leap into the dark. He yelled over the cacophony of noise now filling the hall. Bell! He saw a man first, a pale grubby face, panting with fear and terror as he climbed up. The doctor heaved him out and almost hurled him aside as he leaned further down. There was Bill, scrambling towards him. And behind Bill was a writhing maelstrom of dark tentacles, reaching to grab her. Chapter 4 The doctor shone the red quartz light straight on them. You get back! One arm held the light. The other reached down to grab Bill's reaching hand, yanking her upwards. Bill fell past him into the safety of the hall, and the doctor still held the light. He held it as the tentacles writhed and shriveled back, pulling away from the red blaze. More! Louder! Nardal was urging the terrified children to swell the ear-splitting racket in the hall still further. Someone was thundering a great drum now, and the bray of horns shook the room. The doctor held the light, steadfast, as a chilling, sibilant hiss of rage filled the tunnel below. He held it till the beast was gone, and there was nothing below but darkness and silence. Then he stepped back, and Nardal and Ban heaved the stone over the entrance to the tunnel again. Everyone stopped yelling and stamping and there was a moment of shocked silence. Breathless, the doctor looked approvingly at the quartz weapon, still tightly gripped in his hand. It really is very ingenious. Reduce the light to only one range of the spectrum and it becomes poisonous. That must have taken a few generations to work out. He looked over at Bill. She was standing, shaking, but smiling at him, her face awash with affection and relief. Nardal could see her instinct to grab the doctor in a hug was barely being held in check. The doctor considered her apparently severe. So you see what happens when you run off on your own? She nodded. But I found the Ninth Legion. So I see. He looked at the battered legionaries, huddled in a weary, defensive group at the other side of the hall. They weren't all destroyed. Some of them were by the river. Some of them had escaped along the river. He nodded, a little impatient. Yes, so... She cut him off. So that means... She let the question hang, the look held between them. The doctor's face was unreadable, but something like the ghost of a smile seemed to lurk around the creases of his mouth and in the hollows of his eyes. Say it, muttered Bill. Say it, I was right. His expression still gave her nothing. 
She repeated it, articulating each word separately. I was right. He shrugged, refusing those words. Whatever. If you're so good at guessing, what do you think is going to happen next? For a moment, she hovered between fury and relief at finding him again, so solidly there, so reassuringly and infuriatingly himself. Her joy at seeing him won out. She rushed forward and grabbed him in a tight hug. He suffered it, patting her absently on the back. Yes, good to see you too, but our next problem has arrived. He disentangled her gently and turned her to see what was happening in the hall. The five surviving legionaries stood back to back in a defensive circle, their swords drawn. All the Picts were now slowly surrounding the intruders. Each child picked up a weapon, rocks, cudgels and daggers, every small face glaring hatred. Carr walked through them all, drawing her iron sword and pointing it threateningly right at Lucius. Her pointed, metal-tipped teeth were bared in a snarl. The doctor gave a weary sigh of disappointment. He walked slowly to stand by Carr. She stiffened slightly as he stood at her shoulder, but her eyes never left Lucius's face. Lucius was staring back at Carr, his hand on his own weapon, the two of them as rigid as dogs meeting on a narrow path. The doctor's voice was quiet and cold. What are you doing? Carr tightened her grip on her sword. We should kill them now, she whispered. Lucius glared defiance at her. Beside him, Marcus bared his own teeth in a defiant grin. Come on then, the ninth is ready for you. We know how to kill your kind. Carr raised her sword. Bill leapt between Carr and Lucius, arms outstretched. Stop it! She looked angrily at the doctor, who was still just standing, watching, impassive. Make them stop! Again, he shrugged. Well, if I knew that trick. Bill looked between the Picts and the Legionaries. We have to stand together. There's a monster out there. Their monster. Lucius's hatred was vivid on his face as he spat the words at Carr. Vetus had his own sword drawn, threatening the fierce Pictish children closest to him. Your creature killed every brave soldier in that legion, slaughtered them. Carr's rage boiled over. You Romans already slaughtered everyone we know, everyone we loved. Thracius sneered. Yeah, we beat you. That's war. And this is survival. The doctor's voice cut over him. But go on, by all means. Cut each other to bits, deprive that beast of more living food. That's a good idea, actually. Just get your little war over and done with so the rest of us can get on with saving the universe. Off you go. Bill was glaring at him again. Doctor. He shrugged. What? You think I can stop them killing each other? Let them get it over with. Bill focused on Lucius. Put your sword down. It's time to stop fighting. She couldn't believe it. He wasn't moving. Lucius? They're children. We're warriors. 
Ban spat the words at her as he hefted a rock, ready to smash it towards Felix. Lucius's eyes were still locked with cars. Tell her to stand down. Tell her to call off her monster. Then the doctor moved between them, hissing right in Lucius's face. It's not her monster. It doesn't care about your little hatreds. It just wants to eat every human creature and all the light in the world. Lucius blinked, thrown by the force of the doctor's words. The doctor pointed back at Carr. The Roman army killed every adult woman and man, took all the light from her world. From her point of view, you're the monsters. Lucius looked past the doctor to Carr. He saw the terrible sorrow on her face, even as she kept her blade high. He faltered. Yes, but that's war. Yes, so your friend reminded us. You want to say you won? Congratulations, you killed them all. What's the plan now? The doctor stepped back, raking them all with contempt. Make a desert and call it peace? Wasn't that it, Carr? Lucius lowered his sword slightly, looking to Carr again, genuinely asking. It's not your beast. No. Carr shook her head. The tears were held in check, but they sparkled in her angry eyes. But I let it come through. The doctor scoffed. Oh, like you could have stopped it. Her eyes widened. But I didn't want to stop it. Not then. I wanted it to kill every Roman as they killed everyone I loved. The doctor shook his head. It was always going to do that. It had nothing to do with what you wanted. Carr pushed this reassurance away. But I could have tried. It's a ferociously powerful predator from another dimension. What were you planning on doing? Throwing rocks at it? The doctor had all their attention now. We can drive it back. We have to drive it back. And we can do that, I think, if we all work together. He looked round them all, seeming to be weighing them up and finding them wanting. But you know, you might prefer to saw at each other's throats with knives and pound each other to death with sticks. Entirely your choice, obviously. He seemed to be waiting then, arms folded one foot jiggling a little with impatience. Nardal and Bill exchanged a glance. They both knew a tipping point when they saw it. Lucius and Carr still held each other's gaze, but their expressions had changed. Now they seemed to be assessing each other, trying to work out the truth of what they were seeing. Behind Lucius, the legionaries were watching, waiting on his order. Around the hall, the little Picts were all looking to Carr, ready to act on her command. The tension held a moment longer. Lucius lowered his sword first. We'll fight alongside you then, to defeat this beast. Carr ducked her head in acknowledgement. She lowered her own weapon, quickly brushing her hand over her face to chase off her angry tears. All right. You can stand with us until we defeat it. The doctor clapped his hands, startling them all. Good choice. Right then, lots to do. Pay attention. 
First of all, there'll be no defeating. Defeating is not an option. Creative herding, that's what we're after. Who here has experience of herding large beasts? Giant cattle, maybe. Oxen. Uncertain, glancing at each other, puzzled. Every single Pict and Legionary raised their hand. The doctor beamed. Excellent. We're halfway there. Chapter 5 Nardal and Bill watched as the doctor moved around the dark hall, organising and instructing. The smallest children were sat on the floor, chipping rose quartz pebbles into thin shards. Nearby, larger children were helping the legionaries load earth and boulders over the access to the tunnels. They all knew no defence could hold back the beast, but hoped at least for enough warning to allow them to escape. Mystifyingly, the doctor was now talking intently to the young Picts, who had grabbed the drums and pipes and horns, many of them holding instruments larger than they were. He was gesticulating animatedly, and then, to Bill's amazement, actually seemed to skip a few steps, as if dancing a jig. Bill gaped at him. What's he doing? Nardol shrugged. Organising band practice? He looked at Bill, a little shamefaced. I do apologise, by the way. Bill was puzzled. For what? Not looking for you hard enough? I genuinely thought you were dead. Well, if you'd seen what that beast could do. Bill smiled. At one point I thought I was dead too. Nardal shifted uneasily. Still... I should have tried harder. I knew that's what he would have wanted, but to be honest, I wasn't certain he was coming back either. Bill watched the doctor. He was rehearsing the children who had completed lenses of quartz now, showing them how to hold them, pairing them up in groups of two. It often seems impossible, but somehow he always does. Nardal nodded. Exactly. I should have known. He survives every apocalypse. Thing is, this might be an apocalypse too far, if you get me. She didn't. He struggled to explain. This was supposed to be a jolly, a little side event, a day off, wasn't it? I mean, I know you don't want details, but... He is involved in another quite large, can we save all space and time event as we speak. Bill was cool. I would like more details, actually. My mistake. I can't give you details. I'm sure you get the general idea, though. The doctor was arranging the children in two lines, one standing behind the other. Bill was watching Nardal closely now. What's your point? He met her gaze. I think he might be spreading himself a little thin. And what can we do about that? Stop him. If it gets too much, stop him. Bill scoffed. Can anyone do that? Nardal's serious gaze didn't waver. That's our job. 
if it comes to it, isn't it? I think that's why we're here. Why we're useful. Well, if we're useful at all. He looked at her a moment longer, watching her expression grow thoughtful as she took this in. Then the doctor was striding towards them, rubbing his hands. We have a plan. How do you drive predators away from vulnerable animals? A great bull might protect you, brave and fierce enough to lower its horns at snapping teeth. But if there is no bull, if all you have are children watching the vulnerable cattle, the sleeping oxen by the carts, what do you do? The doctor had them all gathered round him. The legionaries, weary but listening intently at the back of the little crowd. The little pits at the front barely came to the doctor's waist. Their painted faces tilted up to him as they took in every word. This is a single predator, a hungry beast. It's not like fighting off a pack of wolves. All you can do there is hope to drive them off. But if the monster was a brown bear or a large lynx, what would you do? A forest of painted arms shot up. Yes. The doctor pointed at the smallest boy, a boy of about six, blinking up at him through a tangle of uncombed hair. The boy answered confidently. Kill it. The doctor stared at him in withering scorn. You're going to kill a giant lynx. Are you daft? The boy's sister, barely older, scowled at the doctor. Trap it then. He slapped a finger to his nose and pointed at her in triumph. Yes. The girl was still scowling at him. And my brother's not daft. He waved his hand dismissively. Judy's out. He looked round the group again. So, how do we trap this monster? No, actually. More importantly, first, where do we trap it? I am going to tell you that one because we don't have time for wild guesswork. We have to trap it back in the sacred cairn, by the gate. We are driving it back through the gate. That gives you the next question. When do we trap it? Nardal shifted restlessly beside Bill. I don't get it, he whispered. The doctor already knows the answers. Why doesn't he just tell them what to do? Bill knew. She recognised what she was seeing. She whispered back. He's teaching. He's a teacher. If we work it out for ourselves, it's our plan too. And we won't forget what to do when... She shrugged. You know, when it's terrifying. Anyone? The doctor prompted. When do we trap the monster? Carr was frowning as she worked this out. When the gate opens. He nodded agreement. And the crows will tell us when that happens. Right, next problem. Lucius was leaning forward now, following the doctor's line of thought closely. Where will the beast be coming from? For a moment, every head turned to look at the heap of stones and rocks on the floor. The doctor nodded agreement again. Yes, it's possible it will come from down there, but we made that route uncomfortable. If it has a choice, it'll want to find another way. Where has it been up till now? Ban answered this time. In the forest. Correct. So, it may come from here, 
but it's more likely it'll come from the forest just there. The doctor pointed out of the door of the hall. And we want to drive it uphill to the sacred cairn. So how do we do that? The smallest pit bounced with his answer. I'll scare it! The doctor took another moment to silence the boy with a withering stare. Again, how terrifying do you think you are? Are you delusional? His sister chipped in, glowering at the doctor. It was scared of the music, the noise. He pulled a face. Scared is pushing it, but you're right. It doesn't like loud noise. What else? Carr reached over and took the warrior's staff the doctor still held. It doesn't like the light from this. That's right. A crystal poisons the light, if you like, and that will make our monster very uncomfortable. And, he waved the warrior's comb weapon, we can hold it off with your super-duper tentacle severer. Vetus already had his sword out, copying the doctor's movement. The other Romans quickly followed suit. All this will hold it back, maybe, for a while. But the likely truth is that we're only going to be able to keep it penned in one place for a few minutes. The doctor looked round. Before that, how do we get it to move where we want? Bill chipped in now. We lower it. The doctor shot her a quick, quelling glance. Yes, we know you know, Bill. Anyone else? Bill's eyes widened in surprise. I don't know, actually, she whispered to Nardal. But Nardal was waving his arm in the air, his face gleaming with excitement as he shouted, Feed it! And what does it eat? There was a nasty moment of frightened silence, then Carr whispered it. Us, she said. It eats us. Exactly! The doctor grinned in delight. No shortage of bait. What else? Lucius filled the second silence. Light. Again, the doctor clapped his hands in approval. Wonderful! So now we have a plan, don't we? Someone tell me the plan. As Nardal drew in a quick breath to begin, the doctor held up his hand, silencing him before he could speak. Carr began, hesitant. The beast will come soon, looking for food, looking for us. It'll come from the forest. Ban joined in, piecing this together. But we need it to come out when we're ready, when the gate opens in the sacred cairn. The crows will tell us. Then we lure it? Marcus was frowning in concentration. How? Thracius knew. We give it light. We give it light to follow, leading up the hill to the cairn. And we run ahead of it so it has food to chase. Ban faltered. Can we run fast enough? The doctor's voice was gentle now. Only those of us who know we can run fast enough will do that. So, we're guiding it up to the cairn. Then what? Lucius looked over at Carr. You could have beaten us. She didn't understand. He carried on. Your people, your army, your plan was good. You could have defeated us. 
We were really vulnerable advancing uphill. But you expected us to break up as you attacked. You didn't expect our wall of shields. You'd never seen that. It turns our army into one armoured beast that can even march uphill. The only way to defeat a beast like that is to have another force hidden, ready to close in behind it. Carr recognised there was more than explanation here. There was a kind of apology, a recognition of her loss. She kept looking at him as she joined in. So that's what we need. We need another group of us ready to close in behind the beast as it reaches the sacred cairn. Vetus chimed in. With noise and poisoned light. The doctor beamed. Driving it back with noise and poisoned light. Back through the gate and out of this universe. They were all filling up with the happy enthusiasm he radiated at them. Bill watched all the children relax, starting to smile at each other. He's given them hope, she thought. And so when she spoke, it was very quiet. Only Nardal and the doctor heard her. And then what? she said. Nardal's pale face snapped round to look at her, the same anxiety clear in his expression. The doctor moved closer to them as the Picts and Romans began excited discussion of how to work this plan. He lowered his own voice so they couldn't be overheard. Then we closed the gate. His tone was casual, as if this would be an easy, quick fix after all the danger. Nardal leaned even closer. How? The doctor waved an airy hand. Usual solution, sonic screwdriver. Nardal cut him off. And how do we hold back a whole swarm of light-devouring beasts while you sonic it shut? How do we keep the monsters from breaking through the gate again? The doctor seemed to be getting impatient. It's a very narrow gate, he explained rapidly. The beasts can only come through one at a time, and remember, time flows differently in there. How do you think the wee Picts managed all these centuries? Even one fighter was able to hold back an attack for generations. A great fighter could hold them off for, ooh, ages, eons even. A horrible suspicion was forming. Bill felt the chill of the thought in her stomach. And who's going to do that? Who's going to hold the gate? For eons. The doctor had had enough. He was barely giving her attention. Details, come on. We need to keep this going. Look at them. He indicated the Romans and the Picts. All perked up and ready to save the world. You know what we need now? They didn't answer. More morale building. He glared at them. Bright, happy faces, please. Don't rain on their Pictish parade. He darted off again. He's going to do something stupid, isn't he? Bill whispered. Oh, I think it's inevitable, replied Nardal. They watched him gather the little musicians round him, issuing more instructions. Stupid or reckless and heroic? Depends how you want to describe it, I suppose. Bill looked at Nardal. Can we stop him?
Chapter 6 Lucius was suddenly deeply exhausted. A wave of adrenaline had carried him through their escape and encounter with the monster. He'd still been full of that heightened energy when he faced Carr's sword. Now the strength seemed to flood out of him as if he'd been punctured. For a moment, his legs shook and he sat down carefully on the earthen floor, just staring at it. He was aware of the other legionaries gathering closely round him, all of them catching their breath. Lucius tried to understand what he was feeling. He thought he was dead. He'd accepted that he would die a cold, hungry death, already buried under the ground. He'd even thought he could bear it. He remembered the endless drudgery of his days driving oxen, and the sunlit excitement that had followed when he joined the Legion. He had been dead already. His life before the army, before Sextus, had been no life at all. In his memory, it was a grey, endless drudgery with no other future possible. Sitting, defeated in the caves, that familiar hopelessness had enveloped him. He realised now that when he'd reignited with hope and determination, a part of him had felt he could somehow reclaim his whole bright future, the future in which he was part of a powerful, world-conquering army, the future in which he never questioned what he wanted, what happiness to strive for, because that was clear. The future was staying with Sextus. Happiness was being beside Sextus, but he'd run towards that life again, and Sextus was still dead. Beside him, Felix had also slumped to the ground, offering a shaky smile. Still alive, he whispered. Lucius nodded, wondering how that would ever feel like victory again. Carr was sitting close to Ban, one arm wrapped round him, pulling him into an embrace that they wouldn't break. They were both working together, separating out slices of quartz from heaps of chipped stone, both pairs of hands rummaging in the same pile. Ban spoke quietly. I can run fast. Carr froze as she understood his meaning. He was planning to be bait, running ahead of the beast when it emerged. She drew breath to forbid it, her whole body tensed. Ban felt it. He looked up at her, his face close to hers. She couldn't speak. I can do it. Someone has to do it. She nodded then, because he was right. He took it as permission, leaning closer to her briefly, then returning to his task. Carr was realising the source of the terrible dread that filled her. There was no rest. There was no victory. The worst had happened, and it would go on and on happening till even the last shreds of the world she loved were destroyed. Unless she found even more courage. Ban, she said quietly. He looked up at her again. His face was open and full of trust. There's only us, she said. We have to do everything 
anything to save the world now, even... She hesitated, then found the courage to carry on. Even if we lose each other, as long as somebody survives to build our home again, that's all that matters. He knew what she meant. She was asking permission to be as brave as she needed to be. She was asking him to let her go too. For a moment, his face seemed so much older than his thirteen short years. Then he leaned his head against hers. Of course, he said. A blare of horns cut through the hall. Drums began to thunder out a beat, and three of the smallest Picts raised their voices in an urgent, happy, bouncing song. The doctor shouted over the noise. Come on, come on, everybody up, you know what to do. Carr looked at Ban as they felt the familiar drumbeat throb through them. They scrambled to their feet. All the Picts were forming up into sets on the floor of the hall, ready for dancing. Within seconds, they were whirling and spinning each other, whooping and huking as they bounded through the steps of a reel. The legionaries watched, bemused. Then Carr came to Lucius, holding out both hands. Come on, dance your courage up, Roman. He let her grab him and pull him into the dance. Ban was already grabbing a protesting Thracius, who was shouting agitatedly that he didn't dance until the reel caught him, and despite himself, he was whirling through the spinning dancers, bounding to the beat. The other legionaries dived into the throng in his wake, laughing as the little painted Picts pushed them and pulled them through the steps. Bill watched in disbelief as the doctor, with stately dignity, moved towards her, spinning partners left and right. What is he doing? She asked Nardal. But Nardal was already gone, whisking past her with a high shriek of excitement as he spun two partners at once and vanished into a throng of dancing bodies. The doctor was right in front of her now, his hand extended in invitation, one eyebrow raised in inquiry. She looked at him for a moment, considering refusal, but then she let him take her hand and whirl her into the reel. They span and separated, the beat of the music and the dancers around her seeming to make it obvious how to move. She spun car, spun a laughing Nardal, and then found herself taking the doctor's hand again. What are you doing? She asked him. He only smiled and swung her round to link with Vetus and then Ban, and then she was travelling a great circle of jigging dancers, spinning each of them till the thundering beat rose to a crescendo and dropped them all, laughing and panting, back onto the earthen floor of the hall. Carr, still breathless, walked to the doorway of the hall. She pushed back the decorated woolen curtains and let the freezing night air flow over her flushed face. After a moment, she was aware that Lucius had come to stand beside her. Above them, the air seemed to be rustling, the occasional hoarse croak coming down to them out of the darkness. Lucius looked up in alarm. What is it? Carr's voice was sad. The crows... They can't rest, they daren't land in their roosts. They'll be on the wing all night. Lucius nodded, solemn. But the daylight will be worse. The daylight will be worse, Carr agreed. She looked back up at the restless sky. I should have tried to stop it, 
I know I would have failed, but I should have tried. That's what we do, that's who we are. We live in paradise, but to earn that gift, we promise to keep the world safe, forever. Lucius didn't answer for a moment. When he did, it seemed to Carr he understood her, even though he was telling his own story. The best of us, the bravest of us, all died. For what? Destroying you. Slaughtering the people who were saving the world. How am I supposed to honour the dead now? They looked at each other a moment. They saw, clearly, in each other, feelings that they couldn't begin to cope with in themselves. They saw loss too great to be experienced. They saw exhaustion and grief beyond bearing. I thought I knew what my life was for, Lucius whispered. But he died. He's gone. I need to. It was as if he was working out the shape of his sorrow as he spoke, talking more to himself than to her. I can only feel alive if I live like he did, if I can imagine him being proud of me. Carr just nodded. There was nothing they could say. The doctor appeared through the curtains beside them. His eyes were fixed on the sky. He might have heard them, he might not. There was no softness on his angular face as he peered up into the dark. Well, he murmured, nothing brings a sense of purpose like a faultless plan, eh? Not that there's any such thing, of course. Carr frowned at him. What do you mean? There's no such thing as a faultless plan. His deep-set eyes bored into her. Expect the unexpected. And be ready to help me, both of you. He stared at Lucius too. Can you do that? Wordlessly, they both nodded. Good. The doctor smiled and looked towards the invisible horizon. So, faultless plan, preparation for the unexpected. All we need now is a bit of luck. Lucius didn't like the sound of this. Luck? The doctor nodded. Pray the gate opens before the sun rises. He ducked back into the hall. Carr and Lucius looked at each other. Will it work? said Carr. Do you think we'll drive it out? He held her gaze. If we do, I want to be the one to do that. I want to give everything, everything I am, to defeat that beast. Not alone. Her face had hardened. You won't do that alone. You can't. And I won't let you. It's my job. I was born to protect the world from that beast. All my people were. He looked into her angry face and then he gave a little nod of acknowledgement. He held out his hand. Together then. A moment's hesitation, and then she took his hand, letting a sad smile creep onto her face. Together. Chapter 7 Bill was in the doctor's way, 
blocking his path as he tried to get past to check on the little Picts, fashioning slivers of rose quartz so they could be held up to the light. She glared at him, her face full of accusation. You're going to follow that creature, aren't you? You're going to close the gate, all right, but you're planning on doing it from the other side. You're going to go into the other universe, aren't you? His face tightened in exasperation. For a moment, it looked like he might deny it. Then he sighed. Your point, being? She couldn't believe it. You can't do that. Something remote entered his face. Something that wordlessly removed him from her placing him far away from her, across a gulf of centuries. Obviously I can. She was fighting angry tears, keeping them fiercely in check. You can't do that to me, to us. Nardal was close beside her, looking up at the doctor with implacable little eyes. You have other responsibilities, he said quietly. The doctor seemed so far away from them now, he barely recognised them. There'll be time for that. There's time for everything, one of the advantages of the identity. He smiled mirthlessly. I am a time lord. I'm sure I'll fit everything in, in the end. Bill felt her anxiety and anger boiling over. It was a horribly familiar feeling. She felt diminished. She felt patronised. To see the remote superiority on the doctor's face after all she'd risked to follow him was beyond bearing. She took an angry breath. We might have a better idea. Did you think of that? Did you think to ask us? The doctor's detached expression didn't flicker. All right, he said. The world is about to be destroyed by a swarm of light-ingesting predators, but we still have a few hours to save everyone and everything. What's your plan? I'll do it. Bill realised the horror and darkness she was accepting as the rest of her future. An endless, terrifying fight with only one possible ending. And yet she still knew it had to be done. She found herself straightening up, head lifted high, squaring up to the doctor and bristling with courage and determination. A very, very small part of her felt a flicker of pride. You have to do everything, always, she said. But I can do this. This one thing, I can do. She saw compassion softening the doctor's expression then, but it was Nardal who answered. No, that won't do it. One little human can only hold these light eaters off for a generation or two. A hundred years, tops. We need something to hold them back for... Ooh, Nardal seemed to be calculating. For a long time, lifetime of the universe, effectively eternity. He looked between them brightly, hopeful of another idea. Bill opened her mouth, but nothing came out. The doctor gave a sad little shrug a rueful smile on his face as he watched her flounder to find any other solution. Then there was a shout from the doorway of the hall. Carr was yelling urgently. Listen! The crows were flying and flocking in different patterns. None of them usually flew in the dark. Their eyes were adapted to daylight. 
their night vision was as weak as a human's. In the cloudy, moonless night, they were effectively blind. So the maelstrom of circling, frightened birds banked and wheeled on instinct, each bird keeping terrified sideways sight of the tail or wing feathers of the corvid next to them. There were near misses, wingtips grazing wingtips, chisel beaks nearly colliding at speed as the birds flapped and whirled. Startled caws sounded in the night. The jackdaws flew in an agitated erratic flock, like a great sheet of cloth waving to and fro in the night wind. The crows and rooks circled above them, round and round, their strength faltering now so the weaker birds dipped and dropped into the crowded lower air before panicked wingbeats powered them up again. Only the ravens seemed tireless. Only their inky eyes could see more clearly, watching the circling birds below. They were staring back and forth over the whole dark landscape of forest and mountain that was now, faintly, so faintly, starting to become visible as the lower edge of the sky lightened to a pale grey, the first hint of the coming dawn. But the ravens were not just alert to what they could see. Like every bird in the crowded sky, their feathers flexed and rippled to ride every breeze, to sense every movement in the air. And the movement, the smallest tremor that announced the shifting of the boundaries between universes. In the highest, clearest air, the ravens felt that first. Their deep croaks of warning alerted every bird below as they felt it too, and then every feathered throat was shouting at once. Now! Now! Gate! 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 Inside the chambered cairn, in the damp, silent dark at its heart, the stones trembled slightly, and the huge blank slab of the gate seemed to melt and shift a little. The doctor was alive with energy, shouting directions as the little Picts streamed past him out into the dark. Runners, get ready! Torchlighters, get in place! Hide those flames! Hide the light till you hear the signal! Smaller children were scrambling out of the door of the hall and up the opposite hill towards the cairn. They were cradling little glowing coals from the fire inside hollow branches. A line of wooden torches had been planted in the boggy earth, a line of lights all along the path to the cairn, ready to flare up and illuminate the night as the children touched the embers to tallow-soaked leather and grass. The doctor was aware of a very small presence beside him, he looked down. The little boy, who'd answered his questions and been silenced, was staring up at him solemnly. I can frighten it, he said now, his small face fierce with determination. I can scare anything. The doctor considered him for a moment. He nodded. Yes, you're absolutely terrifying me. The best thing you can do is hide over there, do you see? He pointed to a heap of stones beyond the hall. Hide over there and make the loudest noise you can. The beast won't know where it's coming from. Terrifying. Can you do that? The little boy nodded eagerly. Off you go then. 
The doctor watched the little boy scamper towards that safe hiding place. His sister followed, throwing the doctor a grateful glance as she did so. He shook his head. Delusional. Then he shouted to the others, Ready by the fire! A great pile of dry wood and thin kindling had been built at the base of the hill. The remaining Pictish children and the Roman soldiers gathered there, all watching the doctor. Above them, the sky was gradually flushing with pale light. The circling crows were silent again, whirling in their endless agitated flight. On the meadows beyond the forest, the terrified cattle, cowering in a huddle, felt it. They raised their great horned heads and lowed in panic, then stampeded away from the dark trees and the danger that filled those shadows. In the swift, deep river, the great salmon felt it, rising out of the water in one great leap, as if striving for escape before plunging into the deepest, darkest depths of the water and powering itself further against the current, away from the same dread. All the creatures in the Pictish world could feel it, a sense of the air shifting and altering, a door opening between dimensions. Something was coming, and it was unnatural. Wrong. The doctor was speaking in a low voice, compelling, urgent. It's coming now. Once the fire is lit, run to your places. Run. We all know how fast this creature can move. Sprinters, are you ready? Ban and the other teenagers stood poised, their painted faces pale but determined. Ban nodded. The doctor turned to the others. When they take off, we scatter. Don't try to watch what's happening. Get out of the way. Then, when you hear the second horn, line up and follow me. The doctor turned to the thin girl now beside him, hefting a great bronze crumb horn longer than her own body. Stay close to me. I'll tell you when to make some noise. The girl nodded, nervous but composed. Bill was holding an unlit torch in one hand, a thin sliver of rose quartz in the other. Beside her, Nardol hefted his own torch and lens, looking deeply anxious. We don't have much time, he whispered. He's revving up. In front of Bill and Nardol, Carr and Lucius stood close together in the group of waiting legionaries, all holding spears and hastily assembled comb weapons to match Carr's. They shifted restlessly as the doctor continued. Then we'll charge behind it. As much noise as we can. Musicians, we're going to need all you've got. The children holding drums and horns gripped them tighter. The singers nodded. It's going to be drawn towards the gate anyway. But when we reach the entrance to the cairn, we want it to have no choice. We have to drive it into the cairn and towards the gate. In front of Bill, Carr turned to look at Lucius. Then what? She asked him. The same question was clear on Lucius's face. Bill answered, trying to keep her tone even. He's going to drive it back through the gate, and then he's going to close the gate behind him. Carr looked towards the doctor, who was now exhorting the musicians to make noise, showing the smaller children again how to hold their quartz lenses steady. But who will hold the gate? She asked urgently. You said there's a swarm of those beasts through there now. Who will hold them from the gate? Even if we close it, 
Won't they break through? Bill swallowed, unable to answer, a lump of grief and anger in her throat. Nardal spoke for her. His tone was airy and apparently scornful. Oh, he's going to have a go at holding them back. Got to be him, hasn't it? No one else fit to do the job, apparently. No, no! Carr's face darkened in a flush of anger. We do that. My people hold the gate. You can't hold it alone. We agreed. Lucius's voice was quiet, but his face was determined. Carr hesitated. She understood what he meant, but she still hesitated, searching his face. Once we walk into the gate, we'll never come out, she warned him. Not till the end of the world. Unnoticed, quiet Thracius had overheard everything. Now he spoke, four short words. So we die fighting. Little Marcus was close beside him, nodding grimly. Let the name of the ninth mean something. Let it be worth something again. Vetus grinned. It's a narrow pass, right? So we take turns. We take turns and time will show who's the best fighter. It's me, by the way. Carr shook her head at him, still trying to warn them away. It's not a game. It's not a game, it's our death. We fight until the end of time. Vetus's smile died, but he met her fierce gaze, his own determination clear. I know, he said quietly. And you're telling me your courage won't fail until the end of time? It was Lucius who answered her. The ninth won't fail again. We'll keep your courage up. The hoarse little voice came from close beside them. They all turned to see one of the musicians. We'll come with you, to play the music, to keep you dancing and fighting. Another musician added, a little girl clutching a skin drum. Bill's eyes had filled with tears. You can't, you mustn't, you're too young. She looked at Lucius and Carr, at all the grim-faced determined legionaries. You're giving up everything. Nardal cut over her. Well, I think it's a cracking idea. He beamed at them. Lovely solution. Bill's eyes still searched Carr's face. You can't. You shouldn't, she repeated helplessly. Then she saw it, clear on Carr's scowling, tattooed face. An anger she understood, had felt and suppressed over and over. It was an anger she'd felt again only moments before when the doctor had rejected her courage. Don't tell me what I can't do, hissed Carr. Don't tell me I can't do what I was born for. Don't say I don't have the strength. Who are you to make me so small? The force of Carr's rage hit Bill like a blow. She knew exactly what the other young woman was feeling. Sometimes nothing was worse than to be small and helpless in the face of all of space and time. Bill stepped back, her hands stretching out in a quick gesture of apology. I'm sorry. You can do this. I just... Bill couldn't help herself. Her eyes flooded with tears. I just wish it didn't have to be you. Carr relaxed. She gave a small, 
resigned smile. But it does, she said simply. You might need to pack some sandwiches, though. A few nibbles, said Nardal sadly. Eternity can be a long, hungry time. Carr waved that away, something like fierce joy on her face now. It's not like that in the gate. There's just the moment and the fight. And the dance, added Lucius, grinning at the musicians. Carr smiled back. And the dance, forever and ever and ever. Vetus gave a shaky laugh. Yeah, all right, that sounds like what we want. Carr was looking to Bill. We follow it through the gate, and you can close the gate behind us. Bill hesitated. Nardal answered confidently. Course we can. Then, as Bill looked at him questioningly, he continued in a lower voice. We just need to get the sonic screwdriver off the doctor and stop him going through the gate first. It was just at that moment the crows all shouted at once. Beast! 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 The doctor shouted in the same moment. No! The girl beside him drew a huge breath and blew a long blast on the bronze horn. All the way up the slope of the hill to the cairn, porches flared into flame. At the same moment, the doctor threw a glowing coal into the tallow-soaked wood of the bonfire beside him, and it blazed up in fierce light. Ban and four other young picks with long legs stood ready, looking, terrified but resolute, on the far side of the fire. The monster came from the woods. It came fast. Chapter 8 Run! roared the doctor, and all obeyed, Picts and Romans alike. Most ran together, away from the fire, away from the light, stumbling to hiding places in the dark. But at the same command, Ban and the other sprinters leapt away up the hillside, making for the cairn, running for their lives. And the Eater of Light followed them. They heard its terrible, sibilant hiss as it sprang from the woods, dark tentacles already erupting from its long snout. They saw its sickly green, glowing eyes swinging from side to side as it searched for what it craved, light and living flesh. The dark tentacles shot towards the bonfire, and the firelight was snuffed out in a second. Bill could see the size of the creature now, a vast, lizard-like hulk, towering nearly as tall as the roof of the hall, great hind legs ready to spring forward. It paused only for a second, its head questing to and fro, before it sprang again, horribly fast. Bounding uphill after the trail of lights, chasing down the food, the running children it sensed ahead of it in the dark. The doctor, Bill, Nardal, the Romans, the Pictish musicians at the rear, struggling to keep up as they carried their heavy instruments, they all ran after the monster. They were trying to be fast and silent, but Bill realised in dismay that they could never match its pace. Ahead of them, the lights of the torches vanished, one by one, as the creature passed, already far ahead of them. 
Bill's stomach tightened with fear for Ban and the other children running for their lives with this terrible, swift monster close behind them. Beside her, breathless, Carr was muttering as she ran, Go, Ban, run, run. Bill knew that the children would dive into the cairn, leading the beast to the entrance and then vanishing into the hidden rooms of the sacred building. But what if they couldn't outrun it? What if, instead of making for the gate, the monster pursued them down those side passages? There was nothing they could do, nothing any of them could do, but keep running, faster, pushing their aching legs and straining lungs, and hope they were in time. Ahead of them, the last of the torches was snuffed out. The doctor shouted, Lights! They had to stop. They had to skid to a halt on the steep hillside and raise little embers to the torches they carried, all the while shielding the light with precious slivers of pink crystal, tricky, delicate work with cold fingers, horribly long seconds ticking by until torches caught and flared. Bill could hear Carr almost sobbing with anxiety beside her, still repeating over and over, Keep running, Ban. We're coming. Keep running. Bill held her torch up, directing all its light through the quartz, a wash of red lighting up the hillside. Around her, everyone was doing the same, moves they'd practiced over and over through the night, smaller children working in pairs, one holding the torch, the other the lens. In only a few moments, a blaze of rosy light lit up the dark. Then the doctor shouted again, Music! The drums thundered out first. The singers and horn players were still gathering their breath after the run uphill, but in seconds they joined in too, shouting and trumpeting out an urgent tune, a march. Lucius raised his voice and roared over the noise. Legionaries, advance! The last of the Ninth Legion roared. Carr roared. Bill roared. Every little picked roared and shrieked. The doctor strode forward, holding his own torch of glowing red light, and they all followed him, brightness and noise, marching quickly up the hill towards the sacred cairn. It had worked. The eater of light was waiting for them. It crouched in the doorway of the cairn, hissing, its huge green insectoid eyes glowing. Dark tentacles writhed from its snout towards them, but shriveled back as they were touched by the rosy light advancing towards it. The beat of a marching dance propelled them towards it, and it seemed to hunch lower, hissing in discomfort at this thunderous onslaught. And then it looked over its muscular shoulder, back into the darkness of the cairn. The ground shuddered. The gate was opening. The beast turned and slithered into the cairn, heading for that opening, away from the poisonous light and noise towards the coming of the rest of the swarm. The doctor broke into a run again, and they all ran after him. He was the first through into the dark passage of the chambered cairn, but they pressed behind him, still holding up the light the creature hated, still defiantly shouting and singing and screaming their fear and anger. Bill could see the doctor, a silhouette against the wash of light from their torches. The eater of light had turned at bay, filling the narrow stone tunnel, forced right back against the gate. Hissing in rage, tentacles writhing, 
its bulbous eyes blazed. As it gathered its power and grew to fill the narrow space, Bill was suddenly reminded that they faced a creature that had devoured armies. If it chose to fight now, they had no hope of standing against it. It seemed about to spring forward. Then, behind the beast, the gate shimmered and dissolved to reveal the vast void beyond. For an instant, everything froze. Bill could almost sense the swarm beyond, still invisible in the endless dark, but ready to surge forward and consume all light and life in their path. The beast edged back closer to its home realm, as if drawn to its coming companions. It was now right inside the gate, no part of it still within the sacred cairn. It stood, waiting, gathering itself to spring in the gateway between worlds. And in that frozen moment, the doctor stepped forward. He held a comb weapon in one hand and the sonic screwdriver in the other, grasped like a dagger. Without taking his eyes off the huge beast in front of him, he shouted to them all, When the gate falls, run, run, and don't look back. Bill was pushing forward, reaching for him. She had no plan, only the need to grab the doctor to stop him. No! But Nardol was ahead of her. He snatched the great bronze horn from the startled musician beside him, and in one swift move, he whacked the doctor over the head with it. And the doctor fell. That was the focus of Bill's attention as everything accelerated around her. The doctor, his knees crumpling, stumbling forward, collapsing on his face on the earthen floor of the cairn. She could hear Nardal shouting, Now! Now! Then she was being jostled and buffeted as Carr and the legionary surged forward. Carr was screaming a battle cry, her sharp teeth bared, her weapons ready for the beast. The Romans were close behind her. For a second, Lucius turned to look at Bill. His face lit up with a fierce grin of excitement as he roared to the legionaries around him. Forward the ninth! Vetus, Marcus, Thracius and Felix leapt forward, roaring, waving their threatening weapons. Close behind them, a little band of painted child musicians began to blast out a tune for coming battle, a skirling, swirling dance of victory. Small hands thundering on skin drums, the bronze crumb horns were blowing, the girl who'd rallied them all snatched her horn from where it lay beside the doctor's body and hefted it to her mouth, blowing another rousing blast. As they all advanced on the eater of light, in a blaze of red and a roar of noise, it took another step back. As they surged forward, they followed it into the gate. They stood within the gate, blocking the beast's return. Bill suddenly realised that Nardol was shouting at her, he was crouched beside the doctor's feebly moving body. The sonic screwdriver was in his hand. Nardal hurled it at her. Now! Chapter 9 The sonic screwdriver came cartwheeling through the air. Bill snatched it from its flight. Panting and frantic, 
aware she had only seconds to act, she pointed it at the roof of the tunnel just above the gate. She was certain the doctor would already have primed it for what needed to happen next. No time for doubts, anyway. Bill simply activated it and prayed. Stones were falling. The chambered cairn was shaking. The whole world was shaking as a rift between realms was slowly forced to close. Bill had one last glimpse through the falling stones. Carr and Lucius stood together, facing the dark, their weapons stabbing and twisting as they held the monstrous beast at bay. Behind them, the other fighters were yelling and waving encouragement, ready to step forward and fight when Carr or Lucius faltered. They were... Bill squinted in disbelief. They were dancing. The fierce, swirling reel sounded loud for a second, all the musicians playing full tilt. Then more stones fell, and she couldn't see them anymore. The rift closed. The gate was abruptly a slab of featureless stone again. But that stone itself was cracking, falling, as Bill still pointed the beam from the screwdriver at it. Everyone out! Bill's shout bounced about the cold stone tunnel. Run! Run! She darted forward and helped Nordahl, who was now pulling the doctor to his feet. They got on either side of him and half-dragged, half-guided him along the tunnel towards the daylight, dodging the falling earth and stones as the ceiling shook and the ground bucked under their feet. Bill saw Ban and the boys and girls who'd run with him dart out of a side passage and join the escape. She felt a brief flash of happiness and relief at the sight. And then, at last, they were out on the hillside, out in the dawn light, stumbling clear of the collapsing tunnels behind them. Bill let Nardal take the doctor's full weight and turned, raising the screwdriver again. She sent a last blast at the cairn and watched the whole building collapse. Stones tumbled inwards. The whole top of the hill seemed to turn in on itself. Earth and walls were sucked downwards, as if the land itself had become liquid, and the green grass of the slope was rising up to swallow the heavy cairn that had stood on its crest. There was a last rumble and shudder, and the earth was still again. Of the sacred chambered cairn, there was nothing left but a mound of grass. Bill lowered the screwdriver and stopped its beam. For a moment, she just stood, taking in the peaceful green hilltop where the cairn and the gate had stood. Then she looked round. The Pictish children stood in a ragged group, staring, like her, at all that was left of the cairn. Nardal was beaming. He gave her a cheery thumbs up. The doctor had collapsed on the grass. But he was sitting up, his gaunt face drawn, his eyes full of bitter, angry recrimination as he looked at her. Bill walked to him quickly and held out the screwdriver. After a moment, he took it. Nardal spoke to the doctor quietly. I know you're inclined to bear grudges, so just remember I know about 10% of your secrets the dark secrets. And I'm the only one in the TARDIS who knows where the tea cakes are. 
The doctor glared up at Nardal, and Bill realized he wasn't just dazed. He was too angry to speak. Bill realized she was very frightened of the doctor's anger, but she realized too that she wasn't sorry at all. Above them came a sudden cacophony of noise. All the thousands of crows and rooks and jackdaws were wheeling and banking above them in a great cloud that briefly darkened the light of the rising sun. As Bill watched, the birds began to drop, to fall towards the forest, heading for the safety of their roosts, all danger gone at last. It looked as if the sky was raining black feathers as they streamed towards the treetops. Ban suddenly stepped forward, holding up his arm, calling up to the sky. The great crow separated from the flock and dropped to perch on his arm. Bill saw that Ban's face was running with tears. He talked urgently to the bird that perched on him, its great head cocked as it listened to his words. She's holding the gate. Her name is Carr. She's fighting to save all of us. Don't let her be forgotten. Tell everyone. Tell the world forever. Bill saw the bird seem to bow its head in assent for a moment. And then it flew up, calling out a harsh croak. Car, car. And from the sky, from the forest, all the other birds called out too shouting the one word they would always say more than any other, the one name they would still call even when no one asked them for news or stories at all. Car! 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 Ban bowed his head and cried openly as all the other children gathered round and they clung to each other and wept for their lost paradise on the green hill in the light of a new dawn. Chapter 10 Bill was aware that the Doctor and Nardal were standing close beside her now. She had become familiar with the feel of moments like these. They were about to leave. She shook her head, looking at the sobbing children. The smallest boy, the one who'd thought he could frighten the beast with his cry, was clinging to his sister now, inconsolable. She was stroking his back, wiping her own tears. Already, young as she was, taking on the burden of care. The little girl gathered more of the younger picks to her, trying to soothe them, trying to work out what to do next, to survive. Ban choked back his sobs and straightened his back, clearly trying to gather the strength to lead them all. It broke Bill's heart to watch. We can't just leave. The doctor still wouldn't meet her eye, but his tone softened slightly. They'll survive. They know how to do that. They'll survive. Their stones will survive. And scraps of their stories will still be remembered. But we're not in their story anymore. With that, the doctor moved off. Nardal nodded agreement and followed. Bill threw one last look at the children, holding each other, all that was left of a whole community still clinging together. Then she swallowed a lump of tears and turned away.
They walked in silence over the hillside that separated them from the TARDIS. Finally, Bill saw it ahead of them, a bright blue monolith glowing in the winter sunshine. It was only then that the doctor spoke. His voice was tight with anger. Don't ever do anything like that again. No, Bill snapped. She stepped in front of him, forcing him to stop, forcing him to look down into her angry face. Don't you ever, ever make me do that again. Is this what you're teaching me? When to tell you that you've gone too far? You never have to stop being the hero because you've got someone else who'll stop you. Is that how it works? For a moment, it seemed as if the doctor had no answer. Nardole was just watching them, his pale face impassive. You can't take on every fight, she insisted. You were wrong. She watched the doctor's expression change, a terrible, endless grief briefly visible. It clutched at her heart, and she opened her mouth to apologize, but he spoke first. All right, I admit it. I was wrong. Bill was stunned. She couldn't believe she'd heard him. Then there was a flicker of a sad smile on his face. I didn't know what happened to the Ninth Legion. They looked at each other. Bill realised this was an apology, or as close to an apology as she could expect. No, she said sadly. We were both wrong about that. They walked the last few steps to the TARDIS. The doctor opened the door, and they all stepped inside. In a few moments, the TARDIS had dematerialised, and there was nothing left on the hillside but the yellow winter grass blowing in the wind, and the silent carved stones. Epilogue The story has lasted. The story has survived and travelled as far as crows could fly. Generations afterwards, People knew that the hilltops might be hollow, that inside green mounds and ruined cairns, you might find a whole other world, a dark gateway to another realm. They knew that inside the hollow hills were monsters and strange beings and people dancing forever. They knew that anyone who stumbled in there would be lost, dancing with them for all time. Legends fairy tales. The hilltops hold nothing but earth and the buried remains of a people long since gone. Those people left nothing but a few decorated stones and no one understands what the symbols on those stones mean. The paint that made them bright faded away over a thousand years ago. There are carved images of great bulls and salmon, of a strange object that looks like a mirror and another that seems to be a huge comb. They are carved, over and over, with the image of a fearsome beast with great bulbous eyes and tentacles spilling from its long snout. And if you can find it, there is one green hill in a remote glen that might prick your senses. That might, if you sit long enough on its grassy slope, give you the sense that you could slip into another world if you linger. 
put your ear to the ground there, you'll hear it. The music still playing in the dark. Author's Note I was brought up in the countryside in the northeast of Scotland. I had a wonderful childhood, roaming the fields and woods with my dog, my head full of the plots of historical and fantasy fiction that I read by the cartload. I was also a voracious reader of myth and legend, particularly the myths and legends that were located in those same fields and forests. So I grew up absorbing stories of hollow hills inside which heroes slept or fought, where time did not operate on the same rules as those of my world, where strange, beautiful people danced in the dark for all eternity. With my family, I went on many walks to visit the various Pictish symbol stones that are scattered throughout Scotland. With my older brother, already starting his journey towards the career of archaeology, I tramped over the stone remnants of the people who'd lived here before us. He told me facts. I elaborated them into complicated games and stories of my own imagination. Pictish symbol stones certainly spark imagination. They were raised over several centuries. Their carved decoration remain undeciphered. There are images of bulls, of great salmon. There are symbols that repeat over many stones, something that looks like a hand mirror, another that looks like a comb. No one knows their meaning. Over and over, you can find an image known as the Pictish Beast, a strange creature with a sinuous body, bulging eyes and tendrils or tentacles around its snout. No one knows what this represents either. We know almost nothing of the culture of the Picts, only that they were a loose group of communities that extended over mainly eastern and central Scotland from the Iron Age till several centuries into the Common Era. We know that we call them Picts because the Romans did. They described them as painted people. We know that the Romans never colonised the land that is now Scotland, the country north of the two walls they built to protect the southern lands that they did control. We know, because the Roman writer Tacitus described it, that around 84 years CE, there was a massive battle between Roman invaders and an alliance of the Caledoni, Pictish or pre-Pictish communities, under a leader called Calgacus. Tacitus gives this leader the ultimate anti-imperialist speech, a damning indictment of Rome's conquest and control of other lands and other people. This was the furthest north the Romans ventured. They sustained heavy losses, some say catastrophic losses. It is also often theorised that it was during this terrible battle that the Ninth Legion of the Roman army was obliterated. It vanishes from history around this time. One of my favourite books growing up was the amazing Rosemary Sutcliffe's novel, The Eagle of the Ninth, which tells of a search up into wild northern lands for this lost legion. There have been many other films and stories that provide speculative reasons for the legion's disappearance. This is mine. The infinite possibilities of Doctor Who allowed me to tell it. Keen historians will spot a few discrepancies. For example, it is probably not entirely accurate to refer to all of Carr's people as Picts. It probably wasn't what they called themselves. 
This and other generalizations have been adopted for ease of understanding. Beyond that, who's to say it didn't happen like this? Rona Munro, March 2022. Doctor Who, The Eaters of Light, was written by Rona Munro and read by Rebecca Benson. The reading was produced by Neil Gardner, with sound design by Simon Power. The executive producer for BBC Audio was Michael Stevens. Audible hopes you've enjoyed this programme.